And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. This is the Hagman Hagman Report. Welcome, folks. Uh, in fact, we've got listeners right now listening to this live all over the United States, Canada. And we just heard from a couple of people in Europe, including Karen. God bless you, Karen. Thank you so much, Karen, from Rome, Italy. Glad you're okay after that spate of earthquakes. For new listeners, folks, we broadcast live each and every weeknight, Monday through Friday, that is, uh, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. It's the place to be. And, of course, if you have a computer, which a lot of people believe is the perfect, most perfect uh, uh, seat in the house, to borrow a phrase from uh, Spaceman, right in front of your computer, watching it on YouTube live. We're also simulcast on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, uh, also you can catch us, uh, well, I'll tell you what, folks, just go to hagmanandhagman.com. And there you can choose your listening and viewing venue. We've got two different websites, Hagman and Hagman.com. That's for show information and also HagmanReport.com. Their show prep and up on HagmanReport.com. We've got, I wrote an article today and actually it's uh, on HagmanReport.com as well as on the cover of CanadaFreePress.com. Folks, visit CanadaFreePress.com as well and take a look at the article. That uh, addresses well. That's actually kind of an open letter. I felt like I was writing an open letter to the acting chairman of the NTSB, and that's Christopher Hart. Uh, Christopher Hart, if you happen to be viewing or listening to this, please uh, do the right thing. I know you can, and I know certainly that you will. And that's based on an article by our guest tonight. Uh, uh, we have with us tonight, Mr. Jack Cashel. He's the author of TWA 800, and of course, the book is featured prominently right here. And, uh, uh, of course, TWA 800, the crash, the conspiracy, and the cover-up. I might have gotten that uh, backwards. Did I get that backwards? The crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy. I do that all the time, even when I, even in conversation. <laughs> but our in-studio guest, we're, we're so pleased to have uh, Jack Cashel with us, just a prolific author, a writer for American Thinker. His website, jackcashel.com, writer for World Net Daily as well, WND. And a tremendous, in my view, a tremendous investigative journalist, one who brings facts to the table, not speculation. And, of course, this book, TWA 800, is, in fact, a book uh, full of investigative conclusions, facts brought to the table for you, the audience, you, the jury, to to assess. Portion of the nice broadcast brought to you by Minuteman Stove. Minuteman Stove. Folks, you know, be prepared for any eventuality. And if you are, I'm sure you have storable food in your in your pantry. If you do, how are you going to cook that food if you're without utilities, if you're without uh, gas or electric? Well, Minuteman Stove is the, is the answer. Minuteman Rocket Stove provides you the ability to cook without power. Just a few sticks is all that's needed. And you can boil water. Even if you're camping, this Labor Day, think about that. You could take this stove with you camping if that is your desire. And it, it really is... Or if you live in an apartment or, or mobile home or some place where the quarters are close, Minuteman Rocket Stove is the answer for all of your cooking needs. Now, I'm not going to get uh, 
We're not going to. I guess we're going to just go get right into the program. Joe, first of all, welcome to the studio. You great to be here. here, just in the nick of time. And of course, our guest, Mr. Jack Cashel. We're so pleased to have him. And with him is Mr. Uh, Mr. Privatera, who hopefully we can get to, and we'll get to later on in the program to talk about some related issues, but uh, additional issues about uh, oh, about what uh, could be in store for us end of this year, beginning of next year, and throughout 2017. Hopefully that that'll be the case. But right now. Let's uh, introduce Jack Cashel. Jack Cashel, thank you so much for being a part of our studio. Uh, studio. Thanks for thanks for appearing in the studio with us. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure, uh, Doug and Joe, and it's good to see you guys again. We just saw you uh, yeah. uh, a few days ago. Actually. That's right. But, uh, it, it, it was a very great nice. conversation. <laughs> a beautiful place and uh, just fantastic uh, uh, event there that yeah. we were invited to. And I want to say thank you for that. We had a great time. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I have a place just up the lake. Yeah, we're in here in Pennsylvania right now. Uh, I have a place uh, on the New York side, state of the, on, on Lake Erie, and we had a bunch of uh, oddball, uh, frank, right-wing conspiracies. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I, I felt like we were at the epicenter of the vast right-wing uh, conspiracy. <laughs> the all right, right there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, indeed. But no, it's, it's, it was a good fellowship and, and wonderful people and, and just, uh, just a tremendous gathering there. And, and, uh, but, but I, the other thing, I was so embarrassed because I, it was at that event, Jack, that I realized how little I really knew about history. <laughs> we, 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 folks, we participated in some trivia test. And he, he gave us a test for Jeopardy over here. Yeah. I, I was, actually, I was impressed. Everyone did pretty well. Uh, well, not everyone. I mean, yes, I mean, we did it by team. So it's a concept that I've uh, introduced, I've done elsewhere, and I call it the Civics Bowl. And the questions are uh, designed to be um, both kind of entertaining and informative, you know, with uh, some civics, you know, gist. Like, so, like, one question was, a local question was, which president was inaugurated in Buffalo, New York? Right. And if you could deduce your way to that if you know enough about history. And that is, why would someone be inaugurated in Buffalo. And then the answer is, of course, that your predecessor was murdered in Buffalo. There you go. And that was uh, William McKinley, and his successor was his vice president, Theodore Roosevelt. So, I mean, the, the, the answers are the kind where you, when you hear them, you'd say, oh, of course, rather than, what? Yeah. You know, <laughs> how am I supposed to guess that? You know? Yeah, w- w- Joe and I, and uh, another beautiful woman uh, that was there just a sweet lady we we, we came in dead last we, we pulled in the wagon dead last on that so uh, there it is folks but anyway but jack it was uh, you were here um uh, what it was the end of yeah the end of uh, june and, and of course uh a lot of real estate a lot of time a lot of things happened between your your last appearance and today and that was two weeks roughly before the 20th anniversary right? well yeah i mean yeah and it's about two months, so less, a little less than two months since the book came out. And it's been really fascinating to watch the response. And that's and part of what I you know, would like to talk about tonight is how the media react, how the public reacts, and um, how uh, the government react, reacts when they're faced with an incontrovertible truth right. that has major historic consequences. But that, and and we, need to, we need to discuss that. Now, People may be listening or watching this program tonight thinking or asking, hey, we're talking about an event that took place 20 years ago. Really, 1996, 20 years ago this year, 230 people were, were killed in this in this uh, event just off of Long Island, New York. 
TWA 800, for those of you who don't recall, that was a very controversial investigation that was conducted. The, uh, the, the attribution to the, to the devastation was the center fuel tank that was, ex- that, that exploded. And of course, from that, we, we, it was just an incredible, I mean, I mean, un, un, incredible is probably the best word. Um, center fuel tank explosion, the CIA, uh, uh, rendition of the climbing, uh, following the, the, the event. And then of course, the, uh, debris fields, which you get into in the book. But, uh, uh, what's the relevance? I mean, why talk about it today? Well, you know, it's interesting because I was, um, when I've done mainstream interviews, I have to downplay the relevance of it for today. For instance, I did an interview on New York One. Uh, and it was a two-hour interview. It was taped. New York One is the New York City's, you know, uh, prime cable channel, news right. channel, 24-hour news channel. Yep. And they asked me at the end of it, um, you think this, if this story came out, you think it would affect the... 2016 election, and I, oh, I already knew these guys tipped me off with their their preferences for me, you know. So I said, "No, I can't imagine it would." It's you know, it's kind of a, a slow winding story, and uh, you know, even if it came out, it wouldn't. But of course, it would. <laughs> That's why the major media don't want to talk about this because the very same people who are trying to get back into the White House in 1996 by covering this up are trying to get back into the White House in 2016 by keeping it covered up. That's right. So there's a, a very strong parallel. Well, we had a parallel in 2012 uh, with Benghazi. Oh, yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, I may have mentioned this one last time, but in uh, a very good documentary came out in 2013 called TWA Flight 800, uh, produced by a former uh, CBS producer named Christina Borgeson. Mm-hmm. And um, it got excellent reviews. It got attention in the major media. Uh, these people were scrupulously apolitical, and they, it was pretty savvy on their part. 2013, you know, you can afford to be that. So I was asked to be on CNN, uh, to talk about it, even though I wasn't associated with it. They knew I had a background in investigating TWA 800. So I was on a TWN morning show with a woman named Allison Kozik was the hostess. And, um, at the end of it, with about a minute left, it was only a five minute segment, and some other guys refuting what I'm saying, you know, these guys. She goes, okay, Jack, if it was, a, if it was a, a missile that brought down the plane, who shot it, why did they shoot it, and why the cover-up? And there are less than 90 seconds left, you know. <laughs> so I said, well, let me just get right to the cover-up. I said, I, I can answer authoritatively. I said, this was Bill Clinton's Benghazi moment. I said, he's looking at a national security disaster on the eve of the Democratic National Convention, an election that he thinks he's going to win without this, and he panicked and just tried to kick this can down the road past November, you know? Sure. And then she says, well, thank you, Jack. Appreciate that. Next morning, I, you know, look at the transcript. My answer has been edited out, right? <laughs> nice. It's gone. Uh, if the people watching this think, oh, the major media are biased, now they're beyond bias. Bias implies that there's some degree of impartiality, you know? Now they're, they're into full-blown media corruption. And the, and the best way to corrupt uh, the news is to suppress the news that's uh, inconvenient and uncomfortable. Let me ask you this, uh, Jack. You know, we see, and especially in this election cycle, the, you know, the amount of media manipulation in this country um, and the uh, covering up for Hillary Clinton and the you know tearing down and, and the deceptive editing with Donald Trump. Um, back in '96, and I was uh, 20 years ago. I was only 13 years old then. Um, how much 
worse is the media manipulation today, uh, if at all, from 1996? Well, I was only about 14 or 15. You know, your father was obviously <laughs> much older than I am. No, uh, it, it was, uh, they at least faked the objectivity in 96. Okay. Even in 2012, I've never seen anything like this year. Mm-hmm. This year, it's laughable. It is. You know, it's beyond the, uh, it's reached a point where even, the, I think, even the, the people on the left see what's happening, you know? For instance, I'll give you an example of how it works and how subtle, I mean, how not subtle it is, but how in your face it is. I have an AOL account, right? Uh, because I've had it for a long time and, but, you know, I open up AOL and then there's these news items and they're comically lopsided. Mm-hmm. And it's as though they're written by some 25 year old with a, who's scared that Donald Trump will become president, you know, and there's no, they spin everything, you know. Any rumor is, uh, posted his news and, and, uh, it's always protective of Hillary and it's, you know, if the, the polls are running in her favor, it's, you know, it's up, up there every day. Polls are running against her. You don't hear any sign of it, you know. Nothing that Donald Trump says can't be parsed into some sort of, you know, uh, hateful thing, you know. It's, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, so, so we've, we've gone to, we've gone to a slight, well, we've got to, 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 a, to a relatively over or covert bias or at least, uh, at least some sort of, uh, there was some level of decorum there, uh, if that's what you want to call the, yeah. uh, you know, now it's just overt and mm-hmm. in your face. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Obama White House certainly knows that they, they talked about that. They, when this guy, um, in fact, his brother, help me out with the name. His brother is the head of CBS. Rhodes. Uh, Rhodes, Ben yeah, Rhodes, yeah. yeah. He talked about how they just use these people. He said the average one is like 27 years old and uh, and doesn't know anything. And they just they just run with whatever press releases we hand them and then turn it into news. Uh, and he was mocking them. They can openly mock the very people he's exploiting, and they don't seem to take uh, umbrage at it. You know. So it, it, yeah, it's it's. Sad. The American people, I think, have to. We we need a wake up call. I think, and I think we need to really put our foot feet down. Foots down. Yeah. <laughs> I think we need to put our feet down here, and I think we need to expose, obviously, what's taking place. And I think we're 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 doing that in in large part. But will yeah, that we change? see the the transition from the cable news, you know, regular TV mainstream news outlets, and the level of viewership as that continues to to be chipped away at and and fades away to the point where you know some. CNN to MSNBC shows aren't even pulling in, you know, um, half the numbers of some of the alternative news stations today, where, you know, 20 years ago that wasn't the case. There wasn't an alternative media. And due to the Internet, we've been able to really branch out. And yeah, uh, I mean, Joe, you check our numbers. And, and I mean, our numbers are, are um, I'm not sure if this is a badge of honor or anything, but uh, certainly ahead of many of the MSNBC shows, you know. I mean, far, far ahead of those. And I, we're second, we're second based on this, the metrics, uh, to Alex Jones on, on, uh, on the alternative media side. So, so we are, the penetration is there. People are listening. People are watching. I'm not sure if, if I, if I made my point, but, uh, but regardless, I think people are turning away from the, uh, the mainstream, or at least most people. Um, enough people. Enough mm-hmm. people. But we have, Hopefully. We, we need more, though. Yeah. Well, well, Jack, and getting into your book, and folks, if you, if you have not purchased, gotten yourself a copy of Jack's book, it's well worth it. It's it's worth it at any cost uh, uh, in terms of really it lays out the entirety. It lays out the um, 
it brings forth documentation, evidence, not proof, but evidence, in, at least by definition, in my view, that uh, anything but the center fuel tank was the issue. But it goes, it goes a little bit further. It shows the internal workings of the conspiracy itself and the consequential um, result of, of what was fed to the American public. Well, let me let me start by asking this: um, How is the how's the how has the book been received? It's well, yeah, you know, that's a very good question because there are, um, I, it, you know, it's gotten some interesting um, coverage. Mm-hmm. For instance, New York Post ran a big article. Mm-hmm. The London Daily Mail ran a big article. Saw that. Uh, the Newark Star Ledger, New Jersey Star, whatever they call it. Now, it used to be Newark Star Ledger when I delivered it. Now they disassociated themselves from Newark, but it's the biggest paper in New Jersey. Star yeah. Ledger ran a big article. Um, beyond that, you know, talk radio has always been good. I got, a, I was on the Sean Hannity show, did coast to coast. I haven't penetrated Alex Jones. I don't quite understand that. So if you got some juice there, uh, talk to him for me. Um, the, um, what, you know, uh, and, um, the major media, of course, have been utterly, totally indifferent, other than the ones I just cited. Right. Uh, yeah, there's no penetrating them at all. They simply don't want to know. And equally problematic is the respectable right media, uh, the National Review Weekly Standard crowd. Right. You know? You would think that they would jump on something like this. Especially given its political implications. Sure. And, um, I had, for instance, a long talk with the publisher of National Review, and the reason I got to talk to him was because we went to the same New York City high school, and it was kind of a special place. So if you're an alum, you get to take a phone call, you know? Right. And um, and I was telling him about the book. I said, yeah, there's political consequences. And then I said, but you guys are kind of on the fence about this here, aren't they? And then he just went off on this tirade, you know? <laughs> just because, of, you know, lots of F-bombs, and, you know, <laughs> people from New York never never get too far from using the F-bombs. but um, And then he was saying that just because we don't like Donald Trump doesn't mean that we want Hillary to win. I said, well, it kind of gives that impression, you know. Yeah. Uh, but they're certainly not eager to jump in on this and to uh, find a, a weapon that they could use against her. Uh, same thing with Weekly Standard. I, You know, I, I used to write for the Weekly Standard. This is Bill Crystal, mm-hmm. Fred Barnes. That's right, you know. Trump crowd. And it's uh, there is a well-written magazine, and you know some of the stuff they write makes sense. And they are they are fundamentally conservative on most issues, but when I sent them, um, I just a little blurb, a little you know thing. I got an email back from them. It's a nine-word long email. I don't remember exact word, but no one here has any interest in this book. Period. You know. Wow. I mean, it was that stark, right? No one here. How many words? No one here has any. <laughs> it was that stark, though. Wow. Uh, oh, okay. You know, that's great. Thanks. Appreciate that. Has anyone read it? Do you know what the thesis is? Is it, this is the great untold story of our time? A story that if told honestly and accurately will dwarf Watergate and its implications? That's right. And, um, no, we have no interest in it here, you know. So that's what I'm facing right now. And also the, uh, I don't want to say trolls, but I, I, I was watching the Amazon rankings and that's kind of an interesting dynamic, interesting metric on Amazon. You know how the the uh, the uh, scale goes right. up, and, and then the comments. Of course, I, I saw the uh, NTSB weighed in, or officially or unofficially, on your yeah. on your uh, hmm. commentary. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, because about eighty percent of the reviews on Amazon are five star, right? Right. Right. And but then they drop in the one star reviews. To, they do this consciously to pull your numbers down. They do it to all conservative. Sure. Levels. 
And so I don't, I don't, I'm not really offended by that. But when Peter Goltz, former managing director of the NTSB, weighs in, first he compares me to Joe McCarthy. <laughs> now, which one of us is using government power to uh, abuse people? It's not me. I mean, to compare me to Joe McCarthy? What a nutty that, that's, comparison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was better, though. And then next paragraph, he compares me to Daffy Duck. I saw that. <laughs> right. And then he goes on to tread, trot out once more the most discredited of all explanations. He goes to the, the, his explanation, which they've been using the last few years when they have to go before talking heads. He and FBI, the honcho Jim Kallstrom, say the same thing. Well, no. Everyone heard a sound, and then they looked up. And by our sound propagation analysis, uh, we deduced that they could have only have seen the last six seconds of this event. Well, th- no one believed this. See, see, I went back, and I in the book what I do is I, I took out the 40 most observant of the eyewitnesses. Right. Of those 40, nine of them, the FBI didn't even ask them about sound, right? That's how sloppy that initial interview sequence was. 14 heard no sound at all. That's 23 out of 40. 13 of the remaining, no, 14 of the remaining 17 heard some sound that had nothing to do with what they're the sound that the Peter Goltz said they heard. And only three of the 40 heard any kind of sound that might have conformed to what he was saying. Now, when the FBI's final report didn't even mention sound, right? The NTSB's final report discounted sound entirely. The sound propagation analysis was this utterly nonsensical thing put together by the CIA to discredit the eyewitnesses. And here's Peter Goltz rolling this out like two weeks ago. Right. Not knowing. If he had read my book, he would have known better to do that because I thoroughly just trashed that analysis. And as though it was, see, he should be listened to and paid attention to. But you're thinking, why is a government employee, a guy who's made his living, you know, on my dime and your dime. That's right. Trashing his fellow citizens or just trying to get at the truth. But that's what they roll. That's how they do it. Yeah. And, and that's, the, that's the tactic. I, I think that's a, a common tactic that we see you know, on many areas and in many subjects. But I, I was impressed really by the, uh, by the objectivity. The investigative objectivity. You went into this, at least from my point of view as an investigator. You, you did not look at this and work it from a predetermined conclusion backwards. You went in just open-minded, looking at all of the facts, all of the evidence, and laying it out. And, and that's what that's what investigators do, at least uh, good investigators, without an agenda. And that's what you did. Uh, so many people, and, and we heard from a lot of people after your first appearance here on the Hagman and Hagman Report, so many people wanted to know uh, so many things like, for example, what was the, when in the course of, hi- in the history of the NTSB, have they turned over or relented to a uh, the intrusion of the CIA? Well, you know, well, one thing that, in fact, you talked about that, and I I wrote about that last week, and uh, it was called My Improbable Lunch with the Chairman of the NTSB. That's right. In the course of what happened is, um, just in the way of backdrop, because I'll tell that story because it, it'll explain what happens afterwards. Uh, we did a press conference uh, with Accuracy and Media. By the way, thank you, Accuracy and Media. They stepped up big time here. They had no financial interest in this project at all, and they just uh, did it because that's what they do in Washington at the National Press Club. Uh, it was uh, not overly well attended by the media, as you might imagine, but it, it created. It did what we needed to do because we created a video of it. The night before, 
I called Vernon Gross, who is a former NTSB board member, an applied physicist, former air traffic controller. There's probably no one in America more knowledgeable about airplane crashes than Gross. And um, he was help- he helped me with the book. Because uh, what happened is that, and here's how good his credentials are. On the night of the crash, on July 17, 1996, he got a call from CNN. Can you come in and provide on-air commentary? They kept him for the six hours straight into the night, through the night. He said he only took one bathroom break the whole time. Otherwise, he was on the air. He had subsequently done 170 interviews on TWA Flight 800. Wow. And for the first two years, he was largely supportive of the investigation. And then he, his eyes began to open as, as more and more information became available. And, and now he's a total skeptic. I mean, he's, he's on board. He fully believes that there was a cover-up, that missiles did shoot down the plane. So I didn't even know where he lived, but I happened to call him the day before the press conference, and he realized he lived in Arlington, Virginia. And I said, well, Vernon, you know we're having a press conference in Washington tomorrow. Why don't you come in down, you know? He said, all the time. Then I said, National Press Club, he comes down, and he's there. And um, so uh, uh, Roger Aronoff of Accuracy and Media says, you know, uh, you know, I presented a witness, CIA witness number one was there, the man on the bridge, Mike Wire. Yeah. John Clark, uh, the attorney who's done so much to get this story before the public. And uh, so then Roger says to Vernon, why don't you come up and talk for a few minutes? And Vernon says, oh, sure, why not? So he speaks for about 10 minutes. This is all recorded. Uh, afterwards, we go to lunch, and we're talking, and then Gross says to me, he goes, hey, uh, you know, by the way, tomorrow I'm having lunch with the chairman of the <laughs> National Transportation Safety Board. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. I didn't, I didn't want to say, hey, can I come, you know? Yeah, sure. But then about a half hour later, he brings it up again and says, hey, why don't you come, Jack? I said, well, that's great. I said, because I have a flight about an hour after that. I, and, and we, he, we were, he was meeting at the Pentagon Mall. I was flying out of National, which is just down the road. So I, I get there. It's, it's like Smokey Joe's, I don't know, barbecue or someplace. And Vernon's there. And then I get there. And then Christopher Hart comes in. And, uh, I didn't know Hart at all, although I oddly had written about him earlier. Uh, hang on, Jack. Yeah. Folks, you're going to have to, you're going to have to hang with us for this. This is great. This talks about, uh, Jack Cashel's improbable lunch with the chairman of the NTSB. If you haven't read it, it does appear on, uh, American Thinker. It was published on Monday, this past Monday. And of course, jackcashel.com is just, it's actually cashel.com, just to, oh, sorry. to clarify that. So. Cashel.com. Yeah. See? Right. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. Um, but uh, his improbable lunch with the chairman of the NTSB, what a, what, a, what a fantastic account he gives. Hagman and Hagman with our special in-studio guest, Jack Cashel. Stay right where you're at. Yeah, I want my son. We got, we got a few minutes. Can I get The crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy. Folks, we are joined in studio by author and friend Jack Cashel. This is his second in-studio appearance that we've done in the last few months, and it's a pleasure to have him here today. You have to be paying him gas mileage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Well, Not too far away. It's be- by the way, it's a beautiful drive down here this evening. It's At this time of year, at, oh. like, uh, it's uh, going through all those uh, vineyards and whatnot on the way in northeast uh, Pennsylvania and 
states, right? Southwest. Uh, uh, now we guess Southwest uh, New York State. You know, it's uh, it's it's such a pleasure to have you. You know, I, I've followed your work for so many years, um, even back to Ron Brown's body back in the, that came out in two thousand and four. But um, just a just a tremendous investigator. But before the break, we were talking about your improbable meet up and lunch with the chairman of the acting chairman of the NTSB. And Vernon Gross, folks, who we mentioned, is no slouch. If you if you if you um, uh, uh, look at his article, read his article on American Thinker and Cashel dot com. TWA, my improbable lunch with the chairman of the, of the NTSB. You'll see that uh, Vernon Gross, of course, has quite the resume. But having said that, um, Christopher Hart does as well. So go ahead and continue with with what happened and how that came about and what was said there. I was just saying, I, I just, uh, Gross, you know, he's fascinating to talk to, just in terms of resume. Oh, he said, yeah, I, I knew all the Apollo 7 astronauts. And I've talked to every guy who's ever walked on the moon, you know, things like that. He just casually dropped them in. So, but we go, and Christopher Hart is the third one at lunch, and uh, he's not expecting me. But he handled it pretty grace, gracefully, you know, and uh, uh, Vernon was, uh, was, didn't hesitate to plug me, show him the book, and talk about what I was doing, you know. And Hart just took it pretty casually. And I figured my job uh, that lunch was to find some connection with Hart and also to convince him of my sanity. You know, that I'm just not some sort of whack job from, you know, the blogosphere someplace who's come in to ruin a perfectly nice lunch with Vern Gross. So that was my, that's what I said at the do. Within every 10 minutes, five minutes, Vern would jump in and say, hey, yeah, you, uh, Chris, you really have to read this book. You know, it really nails it. Um, but we're talking, and then we find the point of connection, which is fascinating. And it opens a window on a larger political manipulation that uh, had gone on. And just casually, Chris was talking about his background. And he says, you know, I was on the board earlier from 1990 to and then I was replaced by Jim Hall. I said, you're the guy. <laughs> I said, because I wrote about that in my book. And I said, you know, and I mentioned in the book that, uh, that Bill Clinton had replaced a, uh, a fellow with a, a master's degree in, uh, uh, what, aerophysics from Princeton, a Harvard law degree, yep. an instrument rated pilot with a guy. And then I described the Washington Post article that talked about this. A columnist said he was replaced by a guy with a um, whose best transportation credential was apparently his driver's license. That was Jim Hall, who's a political hack and Al Gore crony from Tennessee. But there were a couple things I didn't know about Chris Hart when I wrote that. Well, for one, as he admitted, he was a Democrat. Yeah. And more importantly, think about this. He's black. He's an African-American. Right. He's a uniquely qualified African-American whose credentials are impeccable, you know? That's right. And so intent was Bill Clinton on politicizing that board and and making it, putting it under his political control, a board that had been established. There's only five members on the NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board. Uh, and he replaced Hart with a guy with zero qualifications. First time ever that happened. The next two appointees, by the way, be, within a year, a Hall, Jim Hall, the crony, is made chairman, right? <laughs> nice. And then the next two appointees are both political insiders, political operatives. Uh, each of them has a little more transportation background than Hall, but not much. 
And so by 1996, what what foresight on the Clintons? You know that when when TWA 800 goes down, they've got the NTSB board in their pocket. Who? Who else? I mean, how how deeply corrupt do you have to be <laughs> to anticipate you'll need to control the board of the national the National Transportation Safety Board? And to do that, you've got to get rid of like probably the most qualified black uh, in this business, right? That's right. Yeah, and, and Mr. Hart's got a, in addition to his resume. I mean, his family has quite the legacy. Yeah. Um, just as an aside, he was. Uh, uh, let's see here. He was. Uh, he, his family is a tradition of accomplishment in the field of transportation. His great uncle, James Banning, was the first uh, African American to receive a pilot's license issued by the U.S. government back in 1926. So, yeah. it you know, makes sense, though. I want to jump in here because if you look at the Clinton body count and whatever, um, you know, people tie certain political and, and other murders into this uh, long list of people that have died mysteriously with ties to, to Clinton, uh, almost half of them or close to that are plane crashes. That that happens, and also there's a lot of minorities get killed on that, yeah, exactly. including Ron Brown, and who both uh, dies in a plane crash, and is a, the, probably the most popular black guy on uh, Clinton's cabinet. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, bottom line is, uh, and you know, for African American viewers, you're expendable. You know, push comes <laughs> to shove, you are expendable. Black Lives Matter, except when it's not convenient. For instance, how many people? How many? I'm uh, just a slight de- deviation here. How many African Americans do you think know that at Waco in uh, 1993, April 19th, 93, uh, 74 people were killed on that in that kind in that religious community? Right. We have to call it a compound to, to, to dehumanize them. <laughs> sure. Uh, more than half of them, 39 of the 74, were racial minorities. 27 of them were black. Right. Wow. Who knows that? That was a fact that was totally suppressed. By the media, because the FBI had given these the people inside the community uh, cameras, and they had taken videos of themselves. Right, totally suppressed fact. So that when when it's politically uh, uh, useful, uh, African Americans can be trotted up on stage and and they be shown off as trophies. But when they're not useful, or when there's another purpose to be served, they can be dispatched. They can be uh, dismissed as Christopher Hart was killed as Ron Brown was. Or you know, uh, you know, annihilated as the sure. people at the Waco were, and then their uh, ref- their their very identity as blacks suppressed. I didn't know that yeah. I, I, about Waco. The uh, the makeup. The uh, I only I only learned it counting. I got a list of the of the dead, and it had them by race and age. You know, wow, age six to sixty. You know, yeah, um, and uh, twenty seven of them black. Yeah, again, very yeah, expendable indeed. Wow. All right. Well, so here we have um, we have Christopher Hart at this point, and I, I just kind of really want to drive this home because I this touched me a little bit. And, and folks, I, I wrote about this. In fact, my article appeared in uh, Canada Free Press. If you go to CanadaFreePress.com, the cover of Canada Free Press, check out my article about uh, the, the one the one man who can make a difference, who, who can who can make a big difference in this, and that's Christopher Hart. He's given the opportunity. To take this, um, I, I would love. I mean, from an investigative point of view, Jack, the information. You know, your book serves as, um, I, I would call it an investigative aid. I mean, you, you recap the investigation, highlight it. In fact, you've given an overview in addition to the book of an overview 
to Mr. Hart. So this is kind of a lay down type kind of investigation. I mean, the facts are there. The work has been done. Right. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Vern Gross had a copy of the book with him, but yeah. he kept it. I'd already signed it to him. So I immediately FedExed the copy of the book to Chris Bart and, you know, gave him his business card, et cetera. Sure. And I gave him a quick outline, you know, like a, that goes with it, just so in case he doesn't read the book. Well, the follow-up of this is there's an interesting a twist on this story. About two weeks, I didn't hear from Chris Hart. I, I'm not really expecting to. I can imagine the institutional pressures that are on him. Sure. You know, uh, it would be take an extraordinary person to step up. If he is that person, I'd be thrilled. If he's not, I just I would not be, you know, overly surprised or dis- even disappointed because that's what you expect. But two weeks after our meeting, uh, Vern Gross, former NTSB, uh, you know, board member, gets an email from a guy named David Token. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. Who's the general counsel for the, the National Transportation Safety Board? <laughs> and it says, it has come to our attention uh, that at the uh, Accuracy Media press conference, you were wearing um, NTSB uh, insignias or regalia. And uh, you were representing yourself as a member of the National Transportation Safety Board. We want to uh, remind you that this is, uh, you know. It's a no-no. No-no, yeah. blah, 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 blah. In the future, don't do anything like this again. So Gross uh, sends me the email, and he says, I asked him, I said, are you going to uh, respond? He goes, no, this is just too demeaning. He goes, I'm not going to bother responding. I said, do you mind if I respond? He said, no, go right ahead. You know, so I sent Token a, uh, a letter, an email. And I said to him, I said, if you'll take a look at this video, you know, uh, of uh, because Accuracy Media videotaped the event, you'll see that uh, Vern Gross is not wearing any uh, NTSB regalia, and he is not representing himself as a member of the National Transportation Safety Board. Right. So I expect I would never hear it again from, from Token, the general counsel. But lo and behold, two days later, I get a... a, an, a uh, no, he, he sends an email to... Gross and he sees me apologizing. He goes, I am sorry. I was told, you know, he said a member of the public told me that someone, they have a plant there. I don't know who, I don't know how this (laughs) got back to him, but I'm a little, I'm a little wary of how it got back to him. But, uh, and he said, I didn't see the video. If I'd known there was a video, I wouldn't have, you know, I would have watched it and double checked. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. But then how did that, how did he think to say that? You know? Yeah, and that always, you know, in situations like that, that always causes me a little pause. Um, boy, yeah. That, that. And there was another yeah. kicker on that email. Okay. From Token, the uh, general counsel. He says, oh, by the way, I bought your book, and I've already read <laughs> the first five chapters. <laughs> well, if he read the first five chapters, he knows that the CIA, the FBI illegally took the investigation over the NTSB, and but they did it publicly, and the CIA covertly took over the investigation from the NTSB, that the whole thing is utterly corrupt, that the evidence is inarguable. He, he knows that, right. you know? Right, And I presume Chris Hart knows that. Now, uh, you know, about um, in 2013 and 2014, this group called the TWA 800 Project, uh, they were responsible for the documentary TWA Flight 800, right. which I mentioned earlier. They very systematically petitioned the NTSB to reopen the investigation. And they had a lot of juice. I mean, they had the head of it's a physicist, Tom Stalkup. Yep. They had Hank Hughes uh, is his partner in this. Hank Hughes was the guy, the NTSB senior investigator responsible for reconstructing 
the airplane in the hangar in Calverton, Long Island. They have at least four or five other whistleblowers. They have 20 family members. They have a dozen uh, key eyewitnesses that, that put together this uh, petition, and they got turned down step after step after step. Token was the guy sending them their rejection letters. Chris Hart did not uh, uh, join the board until very late in this process, after, in fact, it had been essentially a, a fait accompli. So it's not impossible uh, for him at this stage to step up, and it's going to take something like that for that to happen. Okay, and, and I and I really want to, to drive this point home because uh, Chris Hart, Christopher Hart, if you are listening or if you happen upon this this video or audio, um, you know I, I notice here it says Honorable Christopher A. Hart. You know that that uh, title, the Honorable part. It's, Used to have some meaning, and and I certainly would. Uh, if I was in your, if I, Mr. Hart, if I was in your position, um, I'd be looking at myself in the mirror every day, and uh, you know, thinking about my children, the legacy in which I'm going to leave, and also the uh, the honor that you could restore back to the NTSB, and the honor that you can uh, restore back to the country as a whole, the integrity that you could display by your your actions. And I'm just saying that you know, you, I, I suppose. Christopher Hart, as the acting chairman of the NTSB, can, you know he's the actual chairman. He's the chairman, a, yeah. Okay, can, can he? I mean, if he wanted to, and uh, again, I know that the the political pressure would be immense. The accusations would be immense. I, I, certainly, he's in 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 a bad position. Uh, I don't envy him. But could, could he stand up and say, "Look, we're going to reopen the investigation under the NTSB, which should be um, without any type of government intrusion." At least that's the way it was set up in 26 and 1974, reaffirmed. Could he do that? Yes, he could. Now, you know, according to the the bylaws of the NTSB, no more than three of the five board members can be a member of a, aligned with a political party. Okay. So he's a Democrat. There's probably at least two other Democrats on the board then. And then the way they do this is the Republicans appoint good citizens and the Democrats historically appoint hardball players, you know. (laughs) Um, But Hart is in a good position in a sense because he wasn't involved in the original Right. They got rid of him before this, and he has a little grudge there, you know, for getting dumped uh, in favor of, like, a guy named Jim Hall. Yeah. You know, it's as if they knocked off LeBron James, uh, and they put me in his place, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, uh, and then he was uh, reappointed yeah. after uh, the uh, petitioning process by the uh, the TW800 project. So he's right. not really aligned, you know, he's not part of that. So, you know, he has the, essentially the independence. What... The problem is that these uh, bureaucracies have a certain cultural memory, and that once you have this cumulative weight of what's happened in the past, it would take someone uh, with real cojones to, to wait in and do this. And yeah. I don't know that that's he. I don't know him well enough to know one way or the other. Although no. you're right, uh, Doug, it would be what a great legacy, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I, I had uh, just recently spoken with a detective working at, and, and that's. What I wrote about today that appears on uh, Hagman Report and Canada Free Press. I I'd recently met with a detective working a, it's a almost a three decade old uh, cold case homicide, and, and and just to be in that position, where the detective, m- many before him, chose just to go through the motions or not not uh, really follow through, you know, on these cold cases. They're, they're worked to death, and they're just pushed aside. People die, the memories fade, and people have that attitude. What difference would it make now? But the difference is, you know, to the 230 families in this case, to the 230 victims. Yeah. 
you know, that's, uh, and the implications, the national security implications, because in your book, and I won't give away any, anything out of your book, but certainly you, you make a great, uh, point about what happened in the sky that night, what happened at TWA 800, um, not drawing any conclusions, carefully not drawing any conclusions as to, as to who fired missiles, you know, from where. So. And, you know, that remains some, something uh, of a, you know, I don't, I don't go beyond my information. Right. Uh, what's curious and, and fascinating is that since the books come out, uh, I, you know, uh, even before it came out, when, after it appeared on your show, I hear every day from two or three people on average, uh, probably at least a hundred so far, who have um, serious industry knowledge, several of them from within inside the investigation. And um, a couple patterns emerge. The group of people who are most offended by the final NTSB report are, and I've gotten at least a dozen emails from this very specific group, and it'll start off like this. I worked 30 years of my life inside the 747 tanks. Uh, let me tell you, there is no way in hell that, that a, a random spark, but, I mean, they're, they're outraged, you know? Uh, and, That's right. That and well one after be. another, some of them are worked the investigation, right. you know? And uh, others were, you know, work for Boeing or they work for TWA or they work for other airlines. They're, you know, or they've, they're, but they're utterly conversant in fuel tanks, you know? And one guy wrote, and, you know, you get these little critics involved too. I was disappointed that you didn't have a whole chapter on the the functioning of a fuel tank. Oh <laughs> my goodness! Hey, I'm okay. trying to you know, read books, write books that people will read. You know, like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but well, you know, I'm being point taken. You know, but I, I said, you know, I'm happy to share your information, but it just, you know, it's just hard for the average layman to follow. I get But that. the outrage is is real. You know, what would be the Implications here, and, and we touched on it earlier, but I really want to uh, readdress this as well. For this investigation to be reopened and uh, taken, whether it be by Mr. Hart, well, hopefully by Mr. Hart, if reopening the investigation, um, it could be seen as a political maneuver right now, given the landscape of the political elections for 2016. Um, but what do you think would be the national security ramifications? By reopening the investigation, could we? Uh, I mean, from a national security standpoint, are we going to be exposing? Um, I, I'm not sure how to even frame that question, but are there any national security implications by re- reopening this? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's not impossible that I, it seems likely. I mean, I followed the evidence where it went, and it ended up going someplace where rather it didn't go. Yeah, because I'd rather a terrorist should shut the plane down, and you know, we could go after terrorists and. But it seems almost the evidence is overwhelming that the U.S. Navy was involved in this. Uh, it's not impossible that there was some terrorist element that snuck its way into this exercise, and and that maybe they were firing at a terrorist plane, or or there was a terror. I mean, I've heard, you know, from the various people who've communicated with me, several of them have suggested a an alternative that, what's undeniable though, is that the Navy was involved. Right. The Navy was there. Uh, the Navy P three was hovering right over the the plane when it got blown out of the sky. And the P3 is used, the P3 Orion is used to uh, coordinate information among combatants in a, in a naval exercise, a missile test. We know that there are missile tests on July 7th off the coast of Long Island, and we have a video of one on July 12th. So it's, it seems, that seems inevitable. If there was some, uh, top secret system being tested, 
that may have been the cover uh, that the White House used to keep people in line. And that's not impossible. Uh, there has been reports that there was some, uh, you know, from I've heard very credible reports from people, including one guy who loaded the missiles onto one of the subs in question, that they were using an experimental missile they'd never seen before. Now, that wow. said, um, I can't say that with any, you know, full confidence. And, sure. And that's why uh, I would rather the people who know better, and what's encouraging to me is that I've had heard from several people inside the Navy who are willing to take this the next step and are looking at searching databases I could never access and right. asking questions of people who would never respond to my questions. Among the people who's helping is the fellow who worked at the China Lake uh, Naval Firing Range uh-huh. and, and has, uh, and I think he is that his resume <clears throat> backs us up. He said he has test fired more missiles and more airplanes than anyone in the world, you know. And uh, he's on board and he's investigating. But there's so much of this stuff is compartmentalized that it's, yes. it's hard for even people who know a lot to get beyond their own, you know, silo or whatever they call those things. Exactly. Yeah, and, and that, that, that's problematic, but, but not a hurdle that can't yeah. be, can't be cleared. So, uh, before, as we, as we approach the top of the hour, I, I want to drive this home because our audience, listening audience number one, I, I really am proud of everyone who tunes in, listens, watches this broadcast. I really believe we've got, um, a cut above average. The people who watch this this, this program and, and listen to it are a cut above average. We've got police officers. We've got military personnel. Yeah. In fact, I heard from a couple of military personnel in advance of your appearance tonight um, about yeah, I'll be I'll be tuned in. But Jack, what best uh, before again before as we approach the top of the hour? How can how can anyone listening to this broadcast? How can they best help you? Um, they contact you if, if yeah, they have information. Uh, uh, go to my website, which is cashel.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com, and it'll tell you right at the top of the page how to contact me. Okay. And and I respond to every – you put TW800 in the the server uh, yep. address. Subject thing, line, whatever, yep. And I will respond. Uh, and like I say, I've gotten some excellent uh, leads, and I haven't even talked about the best ones yet. Uh, we could talk about that in the next stop in the next sure. hour, including an air traffic controller who was there that night. And a fellow uh, who worked on the missile team with the FBI. Um, uh, wow. So, uh, and they were, there's some great stories behind that that led to some other revelations. Right now, I'm at the point of just knocking on these people's doors saying, you can be a hero, you know. Uh, step up, you know. So. Truly, the, uh, the the gumshoe aspect of your investigative journalism is coming out because, yeah, I can see the the shoe leather, whether it's uh, actual shoe leather or, or cyber virtual. Shoe leather. Exactly. Yeah. And, and folks, you know, this is a time when when you can make a difference. And you might you might be listening to this or watching this program, and perhaps you know someone. Maybe it's not you, but know someone. Uh, urge that person to contact Jack Cashel because this is an evolving, it, although the book has been written, and, and really folks, if you haven't done so already, get a copy of this book. Alright, TWA 800, it, the, uh, the crash, the cover up, and the conspiracy, because it is, it, the, once you read this book, you'll understand, you'll see exactly what Jack is talking about. Then of course, if you know someone, uh, even, even give them your copy or get another copy, uh, Amazon, uh, Put a review on Amazon as well because the trolls are out there digging on the uh, digging on their reviews. So we need to really elevate, uplift the the book and, and Mr. Cashel. And if you're a member of conservative forums, I've been watching the commentary Jack on, on some of the, some of the conservative forums. 
that are out there. And it's amazing to me that the mental disconnect, the people, um, I, I don't even know if we want to go here, but, 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 but just the people who don't understand the significance of, of this event to today. It's almost as if, look, it happened 20 years ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a distraction, diversion. We need to move on and address things more relevant. Today. Yeah, I mean, you, you get, I mean, you know, commentary on any yeah. uh, thing is a hit or miss proposition. I'm always encouraged by the people who make, you know, intelligent uh, remarks and add information. Yes. You know, I, I like to see comments that add information. I mean, if you haven't read the book and you say, well, that can never happen, well, you have to read the book. I mean, come before you, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know. Exactly. Oh, he's only in it for the money. Oh, he's beating a dead horse. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, I'm in it for the money. I, no, if I was in it for the money, as I explained in the book, I'd have stayed in advertising. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Successful man. And, and, of course, you know, books, uh, people have this misconception that authors are, are rich. You yeah, know, right. I, I don't quite get that. Um, but uh, anyway, folks, you're listening to the Hagman and the Hagman Report. You're watching the Hagman and the Hagman Report, of course, to my immediate right is Joe, my co-host, my son, fellow investigative researcher. It's something I like to call, folks, America's premier father-son investigative team right here on the Global Star Radio Network. And, of course, YouTube Live, simulcast on BTR as well. Tell a, tell a, uh, tell a friend about your about a family member about this broadcast. And especially this broadcast, because it's so important as we as we enter into the final stages. What sixty five days left to uh, to the twenty sixteen uh, uh, presidential campaign and, and elections? Hillary, Diane Rodham, the the witch, the yak, Clinton. It's time for a yak. Uh, uh, the uh, go ahead, Eric. Release the yak. All right, the yak's <laughs> going across. All right, there we go. Uh, Jack, we'll have to show you that after. Yeah, the show. it's uh, it's it's just something that. I don't know. I, I I must have Tourette's for something uh, because I I call her the yak and. Uh, but our guest Jack Casho, we'll be right back after this. Stay with us. This is the Hagman and Hagman Report. Our very special in-studio guest is Mr. Jack Cashel, soon to come, uh, hopefully on camera, is, is a good friend of the program, good friend of ours, good friend of Jack's. Uh, uh, can I use your name? Is that right? Can I use your name? Yeah, Mr. Anthony Privatera, uh, who, who brought some very interesting material with him about next year and this year in terms of the analysis of events in terms of prophecy, Bible prophecy, since we are a, a show that's rooted in, well, we look through current events through the uh, prism of biblical prophecy and scripture. And, and while well, we're still allowed, folks, all right, because we know that there's a war on, on Christians in favor of secularism and, uh, of course, Islam. But having said that, our guest right now is Jack Cashel, the author of TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy, a fantastic book available on Amazon. Grab a hold of your copy of that book. It's a, it's a dramatic read. It's a great read. It's, it's dramatic in the sense that the events that uh, are outlined there, the findings that are detailed are, are just fabulous. Jack, you were on in uh, June of, June 21st, I believe it was, of this year, two weeks before the issuance or before the release of the book. Uh, what, what happened since you were on and since the release of the book? We were talking right before, during the break, actually, about the, a few things that, of, of significance. Well, one thing is that uh, having been on the show, my Amazon numbers jumped, which uh, thanks a lot to your audience. Sure. Um, the other thing is I started getting uh, responses. 
okay. from uh, people who either read the book or were aware of it or had seen shows like this. And uh, I would say a couple of them stand out. One was from a fellow who was an air traffic controller, and he was working at uh, New York TRACON that evening. TRACON stands for, uh, I forgot, I don't know what, so someone out there knows what TRACON stands for, but <laughs> I wanted to sound authoritative by saying TRACON. It sounded good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and they, uh, uh, but he was, uh, he was driving around, he was supposed to come in at midnight, and then he heard the report of the plane crash. And so then he, uh, he came down, I went in back into the uh, air traffic control center, and he took over the screen for the fellow who was tracking it in real time, who was tracking TWA wow. in real time. And uh, hey, uh, <laughs> we have some studio. interesting sound effects. You know? <laughs> our studio dogs in here growling <laughs> and, and whatnot. You take a bone away from a dog, you're gonna run into trouble. <laughs> but the uh, so he comes into the uh, the uh, air, air traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we have a dog here. <laughs> Lady, our studio dog is, is just gnawing on a bone. Last time it was a camera cord, folks, and uh, w- w- took out camera number one over there. But uh, that's all right. So enjoy. Hopefully, she's almost done. Enjoy. Yeah. So all right. Get used to that as background. Though. Sure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Let's, uh, I, we, we should just try to say that. Let's try some effect. That it was. He comes in. He hears this interesting sound in the background. And it's, uh, <laughs> no, but he takes over the screen from the fellow who's. Who monitored TW800 get blown up in real time? So to, when he takes over the screen, the fellow has to walk him through everything, and and then he watches the replay, the radar tape of the, what he described as the an object uh, ascending uh, and intersecting. Uh, I think he used the word vertical uh, TW800 yeah. just in the seconds before it disappeared from the screen. And um, so then you know he gets hounded by people all night long wanting to see what he see or tell him what he saw. And his supervisor says to him, have you ever seen anything like this before? And he said, yeah, I did, because I used to do missile tests when I was a radar man in the Navy. And I saw this happen, yeah, several times. This is what it looks like. Some air traffic controllers, and this is a nice thing about uh, the uh, Internet community, some air traffic controllers uh, emailed me or uh, commented online, you can't see a vertical uh, ascent, you know, when you're on a, you know, a screen. He goes, right. this guy says, if you have my level of experience, you can. You can deduce it. So he gave me his name. I checked him out to make sure that he was who he said he was. I asked him if I could use his name. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with not using your name. But he goes, listen, I still have dependent children. He goes, I am afraid of these people. Yeah, uh-huh. I've heard, I'd say about every other email I get is someone saying, please, don't use my name. Uh, happy to talk to you, but uh, or just call me. Or sometimes emails will come and say, uh, please call this number and we can talk. Or one, one, some emails come in using like a gorilla email account so yeah. that their email isn't even traceable. By the way, I keep all confidence. I don't, never use names that aren't the people, people don't. I just like, I won't use this fellow's name. And he said, this is a vengeful organization. They will come and get you, you know? Um, uh, he's not the only air traffic controller I talked to that said roughly the <clears> same thing. But what he said is, we saw it on the screen. He said, I, this is what I saw as a missile test. My supervisor knew this. We all knew this. I said, what was the chatter like there at the, at the air traffic control center? We all yeah. knew what happened. You know? And in fact, as I, I write about in the book, it was, it wasn't the eyewitness reports that got official Washington alarmed. It came right out of air traffic control through the FAA down to Washington. So within a half hour, 
they knew that this plane had been shot out of the sky. So uh, then he said he came back the next night, and he said to his supervisor, I'd like to take another look at that radar tape. And he says, you can't, it's gone. He said, how can it be gone? He goes, FAA rules uh, insist that the tape be kept here for, you know, future review for, you know, to adjudicate, you know, yeah. responsibility. No, it's gone. Never seen again. At least never seen again by anyone who has any right to look at it. Who took know? it? I mean, the FBI come in? Yes. That's okay. And they, they not only took that tape, but they went to all the other uh, radar centers in the in the in that area, the region, and confiscated all the tapes. And there's only one reason to do that, and that's that's to destroy the evidence that's out there. The Another evidence. great example of that is um, or the on 9/11, the flight that uh, allegedly hit the Pentagon. I think there was 94, 97 tapes from different gas stations. The, the Pentagon, tapes, yeah. the FBI came and confiscated all of them. I mean, and they, there is they I mean, an one. investigatory reason to do that. Understood. But what happens is when it's never seen again, yep, and when it's never entered into evidence again, you know. Yep. You would think that when the NTSB was putting its final report together, that the FBI, that they would say, and here, I'm going to show you what happened on the radar screen, because that'll validate the fact that there was no, um, that there was no missile. Instead, they just repeated this nonsense that it was the, the ghost of some other plane that showed up someplace, or, you know, some nonsense that <laughs> the air traffic controllers knew was just bogus. But they're all, you know, either federal employees, uh, or with pensions, with pension is a, it's like the government word for omerta. You know, you want to guarantee silence? <laughs> pension. Uh, or, and this is, this is a, a semi-legitimate reason to keeping your mouth shut. A lot of these guys leave federal employees, a federal employee, and go work for a contractor. This is, a, especially the military people and yeah. uh, the FBI even, and we'll talk about one case in a minute. And when they work for that contractor, if they speak up, they could lose... They could cost their whole company its existence, you know. If you depend on defense industry contracts and you have a whistleblower who's out of control, they have to consider that. I mean, it's you know, even if they're good citizens, are they willing to to bring down a whole enterprise? You know, uh, and in most cases, the answer will be uh, virtually all cases, no. You mentioned the uh, vengeful. This is a vengeful group. Are you are you talking about? Uh Specifically, who who are you referencing? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I would say in some cases, people fear more than they have cause to fear. But it, the perception is among the ranks that they will be uh, they there will be a price to pay if they go public. Um, I um, I think in some cases that fear is overstated, but it's it's a real fear. Uh, we just don't know. Uh, you know. It, Right. We know people lose their job. We know people lose their contracts, you know. And among contractors, it's, uh, they're that far away from losing a contract in any case, you know. That's, yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. And I've seen, you know, I, I've, well, I've, I've gotten emails and, and statements from people who, who definitely have a, a, what I would term a legitimate fear. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, well, for just... instance, uh, you know, we, we had this uh, at, the, at our event on Sunday. We had one of the great whistleblowers of uh, one of the one of the boldest whistleblowers I know. And in fact, it was curious. I think you guys got there a little late, but we this is something of a digression, but a, but a, a useful digression. Before you got there, we played like "What's My Line" with this woman, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, and no one had met her before but me. And so 
Uh, I so I raised the question. We had about twenty people there, and I said, "Okay, um, what is this woman's claim to fame?" You know, and so we had to go. They go around. You get to ask a question, a yes or no question. Are you a conspiracy theorist or whatever? You know, you go around the table, and her, her name is uh, uh, her name is Kathleen Janoski. She was the woman, a forensic uh, photographer for the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, the one who discovered the hole in Ron Brown's head, right? She was the first one to see it. And she called over her pathologist there and said, look at this, what are we looking at? And what they found was the equivalent of a, a, four, a 45.45 you know, uh, inch hole in the, the head of beveled perfectly down in the top of Ron Brown's head. The Commerce Secretary who was killed in his plane crash in Croatia. That's right. And before it was through, and this is why these fears are not unwarranted, before it was through, she and three pathologists would have their Navy careers destroyed yep. for going public with their discontent. And um, But she, you know, she is still alive and healthy, and she still does have her pension. So that, you know, her career was kiboshed, and the pathologist was even worse because they, you know, they were, they're, they're medical doctors and all of a sudden they're out of a job and, you know, they're, their careers, they're, the history, they're, yeah. they're getting a negative review and for their work, you know. So, yeah, bad things can happen to you, but you're not, you're likely not to be killed and you're likely to keep your pension. Well, you know, I, sp- I spoke with a woman that you, you referenced and, and, uh, we, we had a chance to, I, I heard her story and, and, just to be in her position where she would have to, uh, she would have that level of fear. I mean, you're, when you're threatened with, uh, well, treason, yeah. I guess, you know, and, right. and, and, you know, the, everything that comes from that, whether it's the death penalty, I, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that'll stop you perhaps or make you think a little bit, but, uh, yeah, very interesting. So, so yeah, the leverage, I suppose that there's a, there's a, and a certain amount of leverage here with these with these witnesses against the witnesses. But and I think what, when you have first-hand information, yeah. like this air traffic controller does, yeah. you're at uh, you are at more risk than someone like me who's second-hand information. Everything I know is in the book or sure. what I've written about or what I'm talking about here. Uh, and so yeah, there's there is some reason to be apprehensive. And if your first-hand information is at an extremely high level, <laughs> let's say you're the Navy captain who you know pulled the trigger. Um, yeah, I would say that your your fear may be for your well being, you know, and, and that of your family. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, these yeah, I I understand. All right, so here we are, twenty years after the fact, July seventeenth, nineteen ninety six, two hundred thirty people wiped out of the sky. This bogus um, explanation. The the official investigation what took two years? Four. Or four years. Okay. Yeah. Four years. Four wasted years of just you know. <clears throat> government uh, uh, machinations to, to no good end. You know? and, 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 of course, the the, the bogus uh, uh, determination center fuel tank explosion. It's interesting, though, that nothing was done. If that was such a great risk, there were no revamping of the center fuel tanks. Uh, no results. Or any no, no, no plane was grounded, including Air Force yeah. One, which was 747. And a lot of people... A lot of my correspondents, especially those who are in the, the fuel tank business, were a lot of uh, pilots too. A lot of I heard from several 747 pilots, and they said the same thing. Nothing was grounded. You know, we continued yeah. to fly. Uh, there were no emergency fixes or any such thing. You know. 
man, that, that's it, it, it's just it, yeah, it, it really boggles the mind. And, and I, I still am stuck on the idea that that uh, well, Jim Hall apparently in his position, the position Christopher Hart now occupies, Jim yeah. Hall just ceded his investigation over to the FBI. Yielded all of his authority and just, and, and played is. the game that he was expected to play and justified his uh, appointment to the chairmanship of the board and. And to the board itself. Yeah. And one other, before, I, I want to tell you one about one other lead that we've gotten. Yeah, I think it's very useful. And I'm going to mention a name here, but uh, not the person who communicated with me, because I will not. I got an email from a fellow who said, I have information that you need to know. Uh, and he gave me a phone number. It was one of those kind, you know. And so I called him. And then, uh, and the information came out slowly. Uh, he was just feeling me out. And I'm, I would not betray his confidence at all, but. Uh, in fact, I won't even mention what company he worked for, but he worked for a corporation that produces missiles. And he worked with the FBI missile team on the investigation. Now we're getting close to the source. And then um, I was telling him as we as we talked, I said there was one guy on the FBI missile team uh, who uh, was real, proved to be a real hero, who stood up to the CIA long after his bosses and the CIA and everyone else, you know, essentially abandoned right. the per- pursuit of the truth. And I, he says, I could tell you who that is. You talk about him in the first few pages of your book. And I said, in the first few pages, I had to go back and think about it over. And now this is sort of an evolved story, so bear with me here a second. In the first pages of my book, I talk about a phone call I get about six years ago from a woman who identifies herself as... Jack, this is witness number 73. Do you know who I am? I said, uh, yes, I do. I said, uh, upside down Nike swoosh, right? She goes, yeah. Well, she may have been the best of all eyewitnesses. She's on the beach in Long Island with uh, two of her in-laws. And um, she's following, she's, she's an industry professional, tra- aviation, travel industry, and with an interest in aviation. So she's following 800, TW 800 as it goes across the sky, and she thinks it's at a lower altitude than it should be. And she's right, because it's it's just being held down so another plane could pass overhead. Right. Uh, that was a, a fatal, uh, as it happened, uh, you know, just, in, you know, happenstance. And then she says, I see this um, object come up off the horizon, red burning tip, gray smoky contrail, uh, comes up, you know, arcs over, and arcs over like an upside-down Nike swoosh, which she says at the last second. And then it explodes at the right wing. She says the nose of the plane comes off. And then, um, you know, the plane, you know, uh, descends, blows up, etc. And she knew that the nose of the plane came off first before, weeks before, they were able to map the debris field and confirm that. She saw it that clearly. She saw the breakup sequence of the plane and described it in perfect detail. So her report presented a certain problem. And then... I said to her, tell me about that second interview. She goes, ah, that's the interesting part. And then, uh, as I write in the book, on April, the first interview was three days after the crash. I think it was July 20th, Mm -hmm. 96. But on April 29th, 1997, according to the FBI 302, the witness summary, agents Steve Bongard and Theodore Otto go to her North Carolina home, and then she tells them, well, in fact, the matter is, I had been drinking that afternoon. She said she had multiple Long Island iced tea cocktails. That's what it says in the report. Yep. And that she wasn't quite sure which wing it hit at, and 
she thought it was a missile and she wasn't quite sure and so basically they wrote her off as a drunk right this is nine months was that nine hour months seven months after the crash and um so he says yeah he said the guy from the missile company who's on the FBI working with the FBI missile team he says that's your guy I said which one he goes Steve Bongard uh Really? And now here's where it gets interesting. Uh, bond, there's, by the time April 1997 rolls around, there's only two people on the FBI missile team. Out of the 500 or so agents working on it, they've only assigned two people to the missile team. And Bongard is one of them. And Bongard, as my best information is, is that he's the one who, when he's meeting with the CIA, and they presented this bogus Explanation of what happens. Nose of the plane falls off. No eyewitnesses really saw it. You know, blah, blah, blah. He stands up to them. And he says, listen, there are at least eight eyewitnesses who saw the missile hit the plane. He said there's at least 30 eyewitnesses who saw the object come from the opposite direction. TWA Flight 800 was coming in, so it couldn't have been TWA 800 and crippled flight. No, it came at the opposite direction and hit it head on. He said there and then he explained all these problematic witnesses. And he says, until you can you can uh, give me a good explanation for this, I refuse to buy this report. By this time, the FBI calcium's rolled over. Uh, right. George Tenet, the head of the CIA, has already signed off on this bogus scenario of the noseless plane ascending and looking like a rocket. And there's this one guy, right, <laughs> Steve Bongard, who refuses to accept it, but it doesn't matter because the, the industry has crushed him by this time. Well, I, I go in to look up Steve Bungard and see what I can find out about this guy. It turns out that in the month before September 11, 2001, one FBI agent stood up to the bureaucracy and said, we've got to end this stupid wall, the wall that separates the CIA from the FBI. And it was Steve Bungard. Now, by name, he's mentioned by name right. positively in an article in the New Yorker and New York Times. Uh, because he was the voice in the wilderness saying, tear down this wall. And what happened is that there was a a known terrorist at loose in the United States. I think his name was Al-Madar. And uh, Bongard writes to his superiors, he goes, if we can't use our FBI investigators to go after Al-Madar because it's in a matter of intelligence, uh, this so, he said, people are going to die. That's what he says in his emails, right? That's right. Well, two weeks later, Al-Madar joins up with his 18 other buddies, and they uh, hijack the planes, and they fly him at the World Trade Center. And uh, uh, and Bongard is proved right. So now my quest is to find Steve Bongard, right? You know? And, uh, Steve, you're listening. Uh, there you I can, go. Uh, I want to make you a hero here, you know, again. Uh, vindicated. So it turns out that Bongard was a Naval Academy graduate and an aviator. He does 20 years in the FBI, and he leaves. I can imagine he's just fed up. Yeah. Uh, and now he's working for a defense industry. And this is where it gets tricky. So I uh, call his uh, employer, and they won't cooperate at all. Gee, I wonder why not. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, Steve who? You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's here on LinkedIn, uh, you know, with his you know uh, company affiliation, and... He's making a presentation next month at an industry conference, and he's listed with your company, you know? It's not like I'm just making this up, right. you know? And I just got totally run around. And then I uh, talked to uh, 
our uh, private investigator friend. Oh, yeah. The other day, yep. uh, Susan Daniels, who's another great character. And um, she gives me his home address, you know. And so I I, I send him a letter, you know, with, with the article I wrote about him. You know, Steve right. Vongard, your nation needs you, or whatever. I think it was titled. Uh, and so he's out there. He's got to know now. Uh, he knows that I know. And, you know, like I say, this guy's a hero. And yeah. he, he stepped up at least twice, and then he said, I'm out of the FBI. But here's the kick. I don't think he knew this. On the same day he protested, uh, the, the, according to the CIA memos, yeah. the same day he protested their bogus scenario is the very same day that Steve Bungart was in North Carolina interviewing Witness 73 and saying she was a drunk. They put his name on that report, right? I can't believe he was responsible for that. Uh, wow. If he is, he flew to North Carolina immediately after that meeting and came back and did it, you know? So so, so they used his name on, yeah. uh, to, to falsify a 302. Right. I don't. I doubt if he knew that before I pointed that out. And, and, and Witness 73 said as much. No, I was never interviewed a second no, time. No, there was no second interview. Right. That was the way our conversation went. She goes, it starts off, she goes, you know, there's something about that interview. Let me tell you this. I don't know what a Long Island ICD is. I said, could have been another drink? She said, no. I said, she goes, I don't drink. She said, and then there's something else you need to know, Jack. I said, what's that? There was no second interview. It never happened. I said, That's there's something you need to know. You're not the only one. Right. For at least three key eyewitnesses, they fabricated second interviews. Uh, and this was the CIA doing it, I'm sure now. At first, I thought the FBI might have been in bed with them on this, but after seeing what they did to Bongard and putting his name on it, he could not have been responsible for that. Well, Jack, I, th- I think the question that a lot of people might have is, so you're telling us that, that there are multitudes involved in this conspiracy. There, there'd have to be layers upon layers of people who know and, and know about the uh, about this conspiracy. But really, in reality, there really doesn't. No. Uh, there are two CIA analysts. Right. One of them, I'll name him. His name's Randy Taos. Randy, if you're watching, I'm happy to love to talk to you about this, you know. I uh, love to talk to Jim Kalstrom about this at oh, the yeah. FBI investigation. Now, there's a handful. There yeah. are no more than a half a dozen people who know the intricacies of the cover-up. Okay. Then there are certain other people who know about what happened. Right. You know, in terms of the firing of the missiles. Uh, but in terms of the big picture, we're, we're talking about a handful. And that's and that's the way that's the way that these things go. Um, don't be fooled that, that you've got to have so many people working and involved in these conspiracies because that that's a misconception. You control and and Jack, I think that that's really the centralization of intelligence and what we've witnessed here over over the last several years, you know, last well since two thousand and one. However, things become centralized. It's easier to control a handful of people than it is you know seventeen different heads of agencies. No, and that's why the, the uh, Clintons were so shrewd in controlling the National Transportation Safety Board. Who would have thought of that? No. I mean, you'd have to be... Very deceitful and, and planning ahead and yeah, very meticulous. Crazy. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it's almost like Soviet style, you know? It's like... Uh, and, and there's a relevance, I think. I think we should point out that there is the relevance because Clinton, Hillary Rodham, the uh, Clinton is co-president Um as she liked to be called, co-president. And I know also from the White House logs and from uh, my own source in the, in the White House that she was in the situation room, I'm not the situation room, in the family quarters that night with Bill Clinton, 
and one other person. That was uh, Sandy Berger. Sandy Berger. Who is the Deputy National Security Advisor. Right. And what's curious about that is that, and Tony Lake has admitted as much, he was a National Security Advisor. He was an actual person with some knowledge. And um, so what he would do is when the conversation got political, he would leave the room. <laughs> and he left the room that night. We know that. Because yep. we know that Clinton had to call him with the final plans. And what the Clintons did is they used their number two spot to put in their people. Because the number one spot had to get Senate confirmation, right? Okay. So John Deutsch was the head of the CIA at the time this happened, but right. their guy was the political guy, George Tennant. Oh, by the way, Deutsch was fired during the investigation Tennant took over. Oh, man. Jack, hold that thought. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report, our very special in-studio guest right here with us, Jack Cashel, the author of Ron Brown's Body. Of course, came out in 04, uh, still relevant today, and uh, I love this book uh, as well, TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Stay right where you're at. We'll be right back. Talking with Jack Cashel, author of TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. TWA 800, Jack Cashel. You can go to Cashel.com or go to Amazon, uh, I'm sure from his website, and order the book. It is definitely worth the read. I was just checking out uh, the chapter on responsible journalism <laughs> during the break. This, uh, by the way, this is... Responsible <laughs> I was using it ironically in re- reference to CNN and, and others, yeah. you know. But uh, oh, I was just in the office checking, uh, checking the sound and checking other issues. Uh, Eric, you're doing a good job. Everything is uh, running well. Plus, just a number of. I mean, we're getting inundated with emails about, you know, one, what can I do to help? And um, before we get back to what we were talking about before the break, is there anything that that the um, the listeners out there can do, aside from what we've already mentioned, perhaps put pressure on or send letters. I'm not big. I'm not big on petitions, but can they send uh, emails, letters, or whatever to the NTSB or to? I, I don't know that that would do much good right now. I think the thing they could do best, if they have inside information, share it. Right. Cashel.com. Otherwise, I would say talk to your media sources. You know. There you go. And tell them, hey, why isn't uh, haven't you had this guy on? You know. You know, okay. like if you subscribe to National Review or. Weekly Standard, or you listen to Alex Jones, or Michael Savage, even, or there, yeah, yeah, it's, it's Savage indeed has um, been following this. Um, in fact, I listened to listened to him uh, uh, last week, and he was talking about the Clinton criminal conspiracy, as yeah. he always does. And this is part of it, I think. I mean, it, obviously, this is a big part of the right because what we were talking about, and it actually could segue into the Ron Brown story as well because it happened the same year. Yeah. Saying you know, April, a few months apart, right? April to April, to July, yeah. April fourth, April third. Yeah. Um, but um, I was mentioning earlier is what the Clintons did is they were they politicized everything right away, and so what they would do is their people could never pass, uh, get congressional muster to for to get a a cabinet seat, so they would use them the number two seat. So for instance, then this came in handy, just like we said earlier, they stacked the NTSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, for, at the Justice Department, Janet Reno was the figurehead. 
They didn't trust her. She didn't trust them. She was unreliable. She wasn't very competent, but she wasn't reliable politically either. <laughs> so they put in, first they put in Webb Hubble. Right. And remember with him, he got uh, snagged on a corruption deal. And then, in exchange for his silence, they arranged a $400,000 in no-show jobs. Even the New York Times reported about it, you know. To your question, was it always this bad? No. Because at that time, New York Times said, what's going on here? This guy's getting, you know, money from Asia, you know, for, for doing nothing but keeping his mouth shut right. after he was ushered out. But then they finally found their, their, their one of their best fixers was uh, Jamie Gorelick, who took over as the, the number two spot in the Department of, of Justice. At the national security level, they had Sandy Berger, the number two person. The number one person, Tony Lake, was... Again, uh, like a legitimate person. At CIA, they had John Deutsch, who was a real intellectual and a, you know, a serious character. But they put in their guy, George Tennant, in the second spot. And he was rewarded, uh, with the directorship in time. Just like Berger was rewarded with the national security spot. Right. And, uh, was rewarded, huh, with, uh, the most plum job of all. Vice chairman of Fannie Mae. Yeah. She'd make $25 million over the next six years. And then, but she got the call. We need you back. Put her on the 9-11 commission, right? Sandy Berger gets the call. Sandy, we need you back. We need you to go in those archives and to root out whatever is uh, bad that we don't want out. And at the risk of his, not only his reputation, but his freedom. Because he could have gone to, you know, you or I would have gone to prison for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because... Um, in this research, I often mention this as well. Uh, M. Stanton Evans has written a book about the uh, communist infiltration, about Joe, Joe McCarthy, basically. Yeah. Excellent book, by the way. Yeah, and, and it's amazing to, to me to, to see the um, how the National Archives and other repositories of information are being expunged by the by this crew. I mean, by the uh, by the Clinton criminal cabal and those associated with them. Although, uh, kudos here to the fellow in the archives and. I am just, I think his name is Branstep, I'm not sure. Brackfield. Right. Paul Brackfield. Okay. Uh, he is the one. He's the, like, uh, the head of the archives, National Archives at the time. Mm-hmm. And his people catch Sandy Berger. This is, Berger is preparing for the 9-11 Commission. Uh, he gets caught on three occasions pilfering documents. They're watching him. He takes the documents, and one occasion, he, uh, it takes a lunch break. He, they're in his underwear and his socks, sneaks right. them out. Hides them under a construction trailer. These are like classified documents. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then at the end of the day, he takes them home and he shreds them, right? They don't know whether they're original documents or not. Uh, but Brackfield insists that the Justice Department um, alert the 9-11 Commission to what Berger has done. And the Justice Department refuses to do it. And he keeps badgering them. Now, this is 2004, and this is the Bush Justice Department. So I'm saying, why would the Bush Justice Department collaborate in the uh, suppression of Sandy Berger's crimes? Well, then I go back and check all the individual members of this of this team, and they're all uh, Clinton holdovers. They're all Democratic donors, and uh, you know I don't. Oh, I see. Okay. And it's right. uh, I I should say that I can't imagine that if John Ashcroft was still in charge, that would have happened. But that by this time, that uh, Gonzalez, who was kind of weak kneed anyhow, and and then they get away with it. And oh. so Brackfield's saying, no, you have to tell the 9-11 Commission what Berger has done before he testifies in public. And they don't. 
So when Bud Berger testifies, it's like, well, thank you for coming in, Mr. Yeah. Berger. He's already been busted. That's right. Right? Not not uh, in court, but he's been busted by the the archive people. And Brackfeld, to his credit, I mean, he's the rare bureaucrat you see who just kept banging his head against the wall. Finally, a year later, no, I'm sorry, it's in 2004 when this uh, blows up, uh, Berger gets his wrist slapped, you know, by the Justice right. Department. And he gets a $10,000 fine and a loss of his uh, security clearance for two years. Um, wow. And uh, and then when it's reported, it's like reported as a leak in Bush uh, Justice Department uh, done to embarrass Kerry during campaign, right? Yeah, talk about twisted. Uh, wow. The New York Times called it a brief stir, right? A brief. <laughs> and then they say the New York Times report says, uh, no one quite knows why B- uh, Berger did this, you know? It's like saying, can you imagine if the Washington Post had said, uh, 40 years earlier, no one quite knows why the burglars went into Watergate. Nixon would still be re- revered as a, one of the great presidents, you know? Exactly. Uh, it wouldn't have happened. Watergate wouldn't have happened. The New York Times abdicated. They washed their hands of this. And Berger is back causing mayhem a couple years later, you know? And you get, you get into that in TWA 800. The crash, the uh, cover-up, and the conspiracy, folks. Again, I would definitely get your hands on, uh, buy from Amazon, TWA 800, the crash, the cover-up, the conspiracy. Even Lady, our studio dog, uh, is angry about what you just heard. Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You you know, she she, she is a a conservative, I can tell you that. Uh, It's always fun to have, uh, live radio is fun, and it's always fun to have. Our canine American friends out there there for uh, listening. Four paws up uh, from Lady for, uh, on, on, on the book, folks. Available at Amazon and uh, Cashel uh, dot com, folks. Uh, and definitely the the uh, f- follow Mr. Cashel's writings because they're always. Uh, I'm just amazed at what you've been able to uncover, um, and, and what you put forth in terms of your of your content. Um, it's just fantastic. Before we segue, because I, I really want to talk, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about about Ron Brown's body and about the Ron Brown situation, because I think it's reflective of many things that are happening today. I mean, it, these two books that you've written, um, there, there's a synchronicity here, in my view, between the two, and there's this common information. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the motivation is from one to the other is, is fairly evident. Uh, Brown's plane goes down in Croatia in yeah. April 3rd, 1996. 35 people were killed. And uh, immediately after that happened, probably, oh, maybe just a week after that, um, or maybe even that weekend, something happens in the world of professional golf that will affect the outcome of American history. And that is uh, Greg Norman, uh, the shark, the Australian golfer, uh, Clinton's one friend on the Republican-friendly PGA Tour, by the way, the, the Ryder Cup team almost didn't meet with him. They were so appalled by Clinton. That's, I mean, that is, that's how Republican friendly the tour is. And uh, the year before. Anyhow, Greg Norman goes into the Masters final uh, round with a lead of like six or seven strokes. And, um, other than perhaps Jordan Spieth's, uh, last nine holes of this year, um, he blows the tournament. Biggest choke in the history of the Masters, right? Right. So what Bill Clinton does is, this is right after Ron Brown's uh, plane crash has gone down. Right. And, and obviously they seem to be skating on that one. So he he makes a videotape of the last four holes, and 
gives it to his, all his key staff, and he says to them, under no circumstances will we be Greg Normanized. You know? Not, yeah. And meaning that we have this just about wrapped up. <clears throat> we can't choke at this stage. We can't let anything bad happen on our watch these last several months before November. And whenever anything came up, he would he would uh, walk around them saying, Greg Norman, Greg Norman, Greg Norman. Well, TW800 was a Greg Norman moment. And they were not going to allow themselves to be Greg Normanized. Wow. And this derived out of the, the Ron Brown crash. Cause now, in Brown's case, just in a way of background, people don't remember this. And let me just tell you how I got into that book. Because it, it followed right after my first 800 book. And I... Uh, the publishers offered me a really good deal to do a book on the Ron Brown plane crash. And I said, uh, under one circumstance, and that is, if I discover that Ron Brown's plane just crashed, you have to be able to live with that. I mean, sometimes bad stuff happens. That's you know? right. A lot of planes just crash, you know, for without any kind of conspiratorial background behind it. They said, fine, we can live with that. So I focused on um, why the plane went up. Because I wasn't sure I was ever going to find out why the plane came down. That I wasn't sure. But I figured I could figure out why the plane went up, right? When you say went up, you're talking about why the why the trip? Or, yeah. Yeah, okay. Why Ron Brown was sent on that trip right. to Croatia. And uh, as I started the project, there were two people I wanted to talk to. I wanted to get them involved. One of them was Nalanda Butler uh, Hill, who is... Ron Brown's mistress and business partner. Right. And she was deeply implicated in a lot of his stuff. And she agreed to participate. And when she did, I knew I had a good book. And the second person I got was Kathleen Janoski, whom we talked about. Yep. Uh, the uh, pathologist, I'm sorry, the forensic photographer who discovered the, the hole in Brown's head and went public with her information. She and the pathologist involved. So what I learned from Nalanda Butler, and I learned from my own you know, research, was that Ron Brown was a truly troubled soul. He was the most popular black Democrat in America at the time. He was uh, Secretary of Commerce. He wanted to be Secretary of State. Right. But he was involved in so many scams, so many like minority entrepreneurship deals where he had you know some fleeting interest in some deal, one deal after another. And the first year he was Secretary of Commerce, he got nabbed, taking a $700,000 bribe from the North Vietnamese. <clears throat> And, and his wow. son was involved, right? Yeah, and he got his son involved, yeah. Michael involved, just yeah. like you guys, you know, right? Father and son team, you know? Except they were like the bizarro world version of father and son team, you know? The, uh, um, and that's what it was his undoing, because he was... What happened is after the Clintons got him off the Vietnamese deal, he, I mean, he should have gone to prison on that, you know? Uh, they had him where they wanted him. They had him... Um, you know, he they made him their 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 boy, you know, their whipping boy. He had a, their errand boy. As he said at one point in the London Butler Hill, I am sick of being Hillary Clinton's MFing tour guide. What they had him doing was selling seats on these trade missions to raise money. The the critical event in this story was the election in nineteen ninety four, November. Now you gotta recall the Democrats had controlled the Congress, the House of Representatives for the last 40-something years. It was a given. They never worried about that. As long as they had that, you know, they weren't too worried about the their control of Washington. 
because that's where the money came from. Right. In 94, because of Clinton's first two years and Hillary's botched health care reform, they lost both the House and the Senate. It was a huge, devastating loss. Clintons didn't think they were going to be able to be renominated, let alone reelected, in November 1994. In January 95, Bob Dole was leading Clinton by 20 points in the polls. Oh, yeah. So they, they, they launched what Senator Fred Thompson would call the most corrupt campaign in the history of American politics. And they went to Asia to get their money uh, from the Riottis and other people, John Wang, all those people, Charlie Tree. Charlie Tree, yep. Uh, and then they started selling uh, seats on these trade missions. Yep. And Ron Brown was the guy responsible for leading these trade missions, collecting the money. He was their bag man. He hated the role. He was there humiliating him. But there was nothing much he could do about it because not only did they have him on the Vietnam deal, but he was involved, and he involved his son in this stupid Oklahoma minority enterprise oil scam, natural gas scam, and <laughs> there was an independent prosecutor uh, down on his neck about this. And so finally, he goes to Clinton, and this I get from Nolanda, who knew him intimately and helped rehearse him for this. He finally finagled a meeting with Bill Clinton. Hmm. He goes into the meeting... And Brown was a meticulous dresser, and he was, uh, and Clinton meets him in the family quarters in his bare feet, which really offended him, the sense sure. of propriety. And he says, I don't care what happens to me. You gotta get Michael off out of this indictment, you know? He cannot go to prison. He's got two twin sons now, like six months old or something. He, you know, Michael cannot go down. And then Clinton says, hey, there's not, not much I can do about it, you know? Uh, it's out of my hands, you know, as an independent counsel under Janet Reno, blah, blah, blah. And then, then, uh, Brown plays his trump card. He goes, hey, you don't want to play ball with me? I'm going to talk about China. I'm going to talk about where we're getting this money for our campaign, you know? Next thing you know, Ron Brown's on his way to Croatia for, now, here's the, here's the kind of thing that, that the media should have jumped on but refused to. And I brought it to their attention when it happened. When I learned about it, he was went to Croatia to broker a sweetheart deal between the neo-fascists who ran Croatia, which was right after the Dayton Accords, and a certain American corporation. Much in the news in the early when my book was coming out. Yeah, Enron. That's right. right? That's right. And the Clintons did lots of business with Enron. They did these sweetheart deals with Enron all over the world. And I, when I brought this to, tried to bring this attention to the media, they simply, when Enron was totally in the news, right? They didn't want to know because Enron was a Republican scandal. They decided, you know. Oh, and yeah, so, right. um, anyhow, they send him to um, uh, Croatia on this trade mission. The plane crashes, and that much I knew. That much I could establish. I had, I had the book written just on the utter corruption of of his ascent. But then I learned something more. Talking to Kathleen Janoski and the pathologist, I learned uh, what happened that when he, his body came back. Yep. But the real breakthrough was when I um, was finally able to get the Air Force report, 22-volume report. And this is why, uh, you know, independent journalists still can do things, and, and sometimes that the major media will not do. 35 people were on that plane. One of them was a New York Times reporter, right? Dead. I mean, they're all killed. Um, 
So I went through the Freedom of Information Act. I found out about the Air Force report. I realized that I was the first person in the media to ask for it. And this is seven years after the crash. Wow. And New York Times had a guy on the plane. They never requested the report. So I go through some functionary. It's in uh, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. It's in paper, you know. And um, I uh, get an email back. They said it's going to cost multiple thousands of dollars. It's going to take some indeterminate amount of time, you know. I didn't have either the time or the money. And I you said, mean well, for, for, for the for the report. report. Wow. Okay. And I said, I'll, I'll just live with, I email him back. I said, I'm just going to have to live with the summary report I have, I guess. And then I get a, a, um, email back from a colonel. It'll be there within a week. We're waiving all fees. Right? Wow. Which means that the Air Force wanted this report out. Okay. A week later, and a UPS truck pulls up in front of my office. And they unloaded on pallets. <laughs> these, these are 22 huge boxes of paper, right? Like the tax code, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and it was like, uh, I described it as like, um, I, I felt like, you know, the first guy in at American Creek in like Sacramento in 1848, you know, and, and you're walking down a stream and there's nuggets. I mean, it's not like you're looking at a big block of gold, but there's nuggets everywhere. Sure. And so I took the technical part of the report. And I shared it with two uh, international uh, TWA captains, 747 captains, and said, look through this and tell me what you're looking at, you know, because it's, it's beyond my comprehension, easy comprehension, I should say. And then I took all the interviews and everything else. And then uh, at the end of the day, we realized that uh, the notion that this plane might have been sabotaged was the obvious answer as to why it came down, not the outlier answer, you know? In other words, what they, what my pilots were convinced they had done, uh, and this is a little bit involved, but they were flying in to Dubrovnik on an instrument only, radio only. Uh, it was a very primitive radar, uh, right. radio system. So there was no radar. They were just following a, a beacon, right. uh, an audio beacon, basically. And all you had to do to move that plane off course is to move the beacon, you know? Yep. And that is what they believed happened. Now, what made that, um, and then it flew right into a mountainside. Instead of, if they were lost, they could have easily gone over the Adriatic and circled back. At the time the plane was landing, it was overcast, but it wasn't wasn't even raining. They would say it was the worst storm in a century, but yeah. it wasn't raining. We, I knew this from the report, because the Enron plane landed fine 10 minutes earlier. Enron people took their own jet, by the way. And <laughs> so, uh, actually, there's a buffalo angle in this story we'll get to in a minute. But Cool. Um, so they um, they were convinced that the plane had been, it's called meekening. It's, it's been used in wartime, you know, often. You shut down the main uh, signal and you, you, you power up a signal nearby, just a mile inland, and the plane files that signal right into a hillside. Perfectly controlled landing. No... Nothing wrong with the plane at all. Everything was working in perfect working order. These guys didn't know what hit them until they ran into the mountain. Now, what adds a little uh, added mystery to that is that the fellow who's responsible for the uh, aviation systems at the airport happened to be off that day, right? Now, three days after the crash, three days later, hours before the Air Force goes to interview him, he shows up with a bullet hole in his chest. And... Uh, 
hate to hate that when that happens. <laughs> hate that, honestly. In Croatia, by the way, you, if you have knowledge, keep your mouth shut. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, I don't think this guy had much of a choice. I just don't think they trusted him. And so what was reported, now, uh, Croatian intelligence is run by uh, Franja Tudjman's son, Miroslav. You know, another father and son. Another father and son. They're popping up all over the place. Uh, and uh, another bizarro world version of a father and son team. But they deduced that this 46-year-old bachelor was upset over a failed romance, you know. <laughs> uh, and they get away with it. New York Times reports it with a straight face. Um, and that leads us to our Buffalo connection. Do we have enough time to get into it now? Yeah, we've we, we, we got, we got about two three, minutes. Yeah, two and a half minutes. Two and a half okay. Minutes. The, I'm going through the interviews. There is one interview that is uh, really fascinating. That's um, not there. They're interviewing Peter Galbraith, who's the ambassador to Croatia. So the Air Force reviews 175 people. Yeah. Galbraith is one of them. Galbraith says to them, you know, the person you really need to interview is this woman named Zdenka Gast. She was the liaison between Croatia and Enron. And he said she was supposed to be on the Ron Brown plane, but at the last minute, she gets on the Enron plane, right? And then the Air Force interviewer says, that's exactly the person we're looking for, right? Wow. I go through all, so what is going to be interesting, I go through all 175 interviews, not there. I found her in five minutes. She's living in Buffalo, New York. Oh, my goodness. Um, And she's a Croatian-American. She's, I mean, born in Croatia. Right. She married an American. And um, so then I go online to look for, uh, see what else I can find about Zdenka Gast. And then I find this photo in the Croatian equivalent of People magazine. There's Zdenka, big books of me, redhead, nice-looking lady uh, in the middle, with her arm around her two amigos, one on either side. On the left side is Alexis Herman, the woman who sent Ron Brown on his fatal mission. Under her right arm is the yak. No. Hillary Clinton, right? And so I immediately uh, call my uh, Croatian interpreter, because it's all in Croatian, I can't read it. And I said, what kind of event is this? Where does this picture come from? I figured it must be some big fundraiser and... And Zdenka just sort of bogarted her way into the picture. Sure. No, it's Alexis Herman's wedding reception at the White House, staged by the Clintons, hosted by the Clintons. There's only 40 people in attendance. You've heard of all the others. Al Gore was there, Mr. Gore, blah, 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 senators, congressmen, and Zdenka Gast, right? This is wow. a year or two after the Ron Brown plane crash. Uh, and um, We'll pick this story up. My goodness, <laughs> folks. I mean, you talk about the template for the criminal conspiracy that exists today of the Clinton uh, uh, crime family. Here it is in living color. Jack Cashel is our guest. Stay right where you're at. No, oh, wait a minute. We've yeah. got a minute left. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 wow. You know, we're going to have to get... Um, you know, when you had, when we switched to the three camera format, you used to put the signs up, no dates, because you didn't want the, the right, dates. Right. Right. a bit, right in big crayon. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, that one's not enough. Uh, I guess we can't, I guess I can't read the, uh, well, the yeah, plots. You need a little comic relief here, too. Yeah, absolutely. Come on, side effects. Uh, folks, <laughs> sorry about that, folks. Yeah, we, this is our first time doing this. Can you tell? <laughs> so, yeah. Now, go to cashhill.com and check out, uh, Jack's latest book, TWA 800. The crash, the cover-up, and the conspiracy. It's a, 
very interesting read. And last time Jack was here, he, he got into the book a lot, and we're getting more into um, what's happened since. And uh, if you're joining us late, it's been a fantastic interview. You're going to yes. want to go back and listen to it from the beginning. And we will be right back after these short messages. Stay with us. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode, this broadcast, this segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report, where we uh, break early and often, right? Uh, Joe took leave, as you can see. There's been a coup here in the <laughs> office. Our, our very special guest, of course, is Mr. Jack Cashel, Cashel.com, the author of TWA 800, The Crash, Conspiracy, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Folks, if you haven't done so already, go to Amazon.com, grab a hold of that book, but also grab a hold of Ron Brown's body. Also by Jack Cashel, folks, if you haven't done so. And you might think, well, wait a minute, what's the relevance of this, uh, Ron Brown's body? What's the relevance of this? What's the relevance of TWA 800? I mean, in, in the context of today's elections. This provides factual backdrop, in my view, anyway, of the, of the uh, criminal conspiracy that, uh, that surrounds the Clintons. And to, to understand what you're seeing today and understand it better, uh, this, this is really a quick, provide you with a quick study to, all things Clinton and and the the criminal cabal that we see in the continuing course of criminal conduct, which is a law enforcement term, or actually a legal phrase, I should say, for the uh, uh, sociopathic tendencies, in my view, what we're seeing behind the, the Clintons. So, to my right is a good friend of the program, good friend of Jack Cashel, Mr. Anthony Privatera, and he's from Western New York, and he's joining us in this conversation. Before we bring you on, uh, Mr. Privatera, and and he, he had his debut last uh, in studio last uh, June here uh he's got quite a colorful and very interesting background i'll, I'll say that I, I i learned some things about him this past week i didn't know he's got some hollywood connections he's oh man plus he's a co-founder of our uh, lake erie uh cabal you know which we have uh, the, 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 that's right <laughs> which uh who's meeting it was a secret uh, uh meeting you attended last week yeah you know i look we, we yeah to tell you what we had to go through to actually uh, to uh to, to, to be allowed on the grounds, the vetting process. The, the, it was brutal. It was brutal. And, and then, I, what was with the black robes and the? Uh, <laughs> ne, never mind. No, no. I, yes. Now you watch. I'm gonna get emails saying, "Hey." Yeah. And Vladimir Putin, of course, gave you authority to uh, yeah. uh, permission to come because uh, he's. Uh, we, we all report to Vladimir Putin now. We, uh, that's right. Uh, at least, um, is that how you pronounce his name? I mean, he's our supreme leader. As Hillary told us. Uh, well, I, well, I just we just refer to him as His Excellency. So, <laughs> Vlad. Uh, Vlad. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so if you want to finish up on, uh, on, on, on Brown and, and, and really, uh, it, this is just so fascinating and it's, again, relevant, but, uh. Yeah, I was explaining just before the break how, uh, the, this woman who is the, uh, the, uh, the liaison between, um, uh, Enron mm-hmm. and the Croatian government and the coordinator of this final trip for, uh, Ron Brown to Croatia, the fatal final trip. She is not interviewed. She's not listed. I have 22 volumes of interview. She's not there. There's 175 people interviewed. The U.S. Air Force says this is the person we need to interview. Right. She's the one who, who decides at the last minute not to take 
the Enron plane, and she takes Ron Brown's. I mean, sorry, not to take Ron Brown's plane, but takes the Enron. Was plane that instead. just merely coincidental, or? I don't know. I presume it was. I mean, I, I'll give it a benefit of doubt and presume it's coincidental. All right. But uh, it doesn't look good. It certainly deserves to be questioned, you know, because the Enron plane landed safely. It was when a half dozen planes had landed in right. a half hour before Brown's plane crashed in the worst storm of the century, which is nonsense. But so she shows up at the wedding of Alexis Herman, who is the the coordinator of that in Washington for the trip and labor secretary. Um, and then she disappears. I try to call her. When I was doing the book, I called in. I said, uh, you don't like to talk to uh, Zdenka? You know, I got her number in five minutes. Right? No one's ever talked to her before. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I said, and I'm not going to lie to you. I said, I'm doing an investigation into Ron Brown plane crash. I talked to a secretary or something. She said, oh, I'm sure Zdenka will want to call you right back. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't. Zdenka, if you're listening, come on, give me a call sometime. Uh, you and uh, the other people I met, Jim, you know, Jim Calstrom, you know, we'll take your call too. At, at least Buffalo's within striking distance right, of us right, here right, at exactly. the moment. So, okay. So, um, that's, you know, and then she's pretty much disappeared from the scene. And, wow. Uh, and I tried to contact her again this year without any more success. Uh, these, you know, and that's, there are limits to citizen journalism. And one of them is getting your phone calls answered. And that's why I, I go, I go to place when I, the Brown book came out, when the, 800 book came out. I go to New York Times. I go to Washington Post. So I need your help. Right. You make a few phone calls, you want to put surprise, you know? Uh, you get a phone call from the New York Times, you're going to answer it, probably. Probably. Even if you're Jim Calstrom. But if you're, uh, I could, I could get so far with these kind of investigations, and then I could really use some help. And, um, but they're not obviously interested because it's, right. It does not suit their agenda. Mm. Now, if I were investigating George Bush, I mean, I, you know, you know, it'd be there's your end. Yeah, right. Or whomever, uh, you know, well, Donald yeah. Trump, God. Oh yeah, the, the <laughs> flavor of the day there. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Well, it, it, and and here it is, folks. Again, uh, TWA eight hundred, the crash, the cover up, the conspiracy, and Ron Brown's body. Two uh, two linked books, indeed. Yeah, it, it's uh, at this point too, and topical as well, relevant to today, folks. And, and uh, we're going to put one last plea out here. If you if you are out there listening and you, and you have any information that would help Jack, that would help uh, unravel the conspiracy, unravel the cover-up, expose the cover-up, please uh, send Jack Cashel an email, cashel.com, and follow the bouncing ball to the yeah. to the uh, uh, email there. So uh, or, or even email us if you want to, and we'll just forward it uh, right to Jack at studio at hagman and hagman.com. Um, Jack, any, any, uh, you're going to stay here as we, as we, uh, hopefully as we talk to, uh, sure. Mr. Privatera. Mr. Privatera is a, is a gentleman that, uh, we've come to know, a good friend of the program, and, uh, a man who's got a very impressive resume. Uh, I don't know. You want to, you want to tell people about yourself? I mean, because I, I just, it, it's, you, you've done a lot of things. Well. I was a science teacher at Silver Creek High School for 36 years, right. and that was uh, it was a great life. Met a lot of great, a lot of great young people. Still in contact with some. And uh, have, have, it, now, have you anybody have gone on to to be uh, like NASA rocket scientists or anything like that? Um, or? No, just surgeons. And uh, I, I, I had one f- young man who probably one of the best students I ever had. 
I saw him after his first year of medical school. Uh-huh. You hear horror stories about medical school. He yeah. Said, eh, it wasn't all that hard. Yeah. Right. Well, now, now he's a surgeon in Pittsburgh. And, uh, but <clears throat> it was a great life. Cool. And I love, there were times where I really resented holidays coming up because yeah, things I, were going I, so well in school. Yeah. Well. And of course, it was a different era, but it was, uh, I'm sure things would be much tougher today. Be a little bit more difficult to conform to the uh, PC standards of today, I think, yeah. in, in, the, in the schools. But but you also have a connection to Hollywood. Well, uh, yeah, 1991. Uh, I was watching Jay Leno. He was subbing for Johnny Carson on Tuesday evenings. They'd have a rerun on Monday. Jay would take over on Tuesday, and then Johnny would do three nights. Right. And 1991. I tell my wife, Sharon, you know, I can write the kind of stuff Leno uses. <laughs> and, well, she says, yeah, well, okay, go after it. And so back then it was easy to contact people. You didn't have so many roadblocks to get to people. Right. And I contacted him by mail, started sending him some material. He sends back a... Uh, little one-page contract to sign that anything that I send him has not been plagiarized from any other source or any other comedian. And uh, then all of a sudden I get a check in the mail for joke material used. And, uh, <laughs> so, so a joke writer for Jay Leno on The Tonight Show. And so, I, yeah, so then wow. we went to fax machines. I was able to get material to him within a week on, on snail mail. Sure. And then we went to fax machines, and then, of course, we went to emails. And uh, so for 23 years, I had a career of uh, freelancing for Jay Leno. So, so I, I, Joe asked me to, to ask you this before the program. Um, he, he said, "Is there?" He, he said, please ask him. Is there any one, and I'm sorry for the diversion here, uh, is there any one joke that you're most proud of uh, uh, or, or that, well, you, that you look and you laugh? The, I, the Yeah, the... Uh, it's a Bill Clinton joke. It was, it was, <laughs> okay. It was the first. It was the uh, first one that really thrilled me because I was watching. I think it was Matt Lauer interview Bill Clinton on the Today Show uh-huh. before he went to school. So this is about seven o'clock, seven fifteen in the morning, and they're talking about youthful, youthful crime, youth crime, and delinquency. And and Bill Clinton says, well, you know, it's it's imperative that the American parents and adults in this country pay attention to what their young people are doing. And, of course, the natural punchline that followed all that was especially Mr. and Mrs. Lewinsky. <laughs> so I saw that. I, I, faxed, uh. I faxed that that morning from school, and it was on The Tonight Show that night, and that's... <laughs> That's the one that just set me off. <laughs> and and there it is. Wow. It, what a great story. And, and I was uh, always yeah. worried about getting the call someday where, you know, we don't need your services anymore because I really wasn't an integral part of the show and uh, but, but by, you, by you, any means. You, you were right through the end, right? Yeah, I mean, right yeah, to the end. Right through the end. Uh, what a great sideline, though, you know? It's yeah. The, and the one I did get a call, and I said, okay, this is at, you know, the, the monologue coordinator. Lisa Nelson, if you're out there, thanks for all your help. 
over the years, and she calls and she said, uh, Anthony, uh, I wanted to just inform you that your joke, such and such, was voted the best joke of the week. But the staff would get together at the end of the week and vote on the best monologue joke, yeah. and I won it one week. <laughs> so, Look at that. So uh, that that was a highlight. Oh, no, no, gosh, yeah. So. See, uh, folks, uh, we are multicultural. Uh, <laughs> diverse. I mean, talk about topically diverse. Here yeah. it is. Uh, Isn't it wow. crazy that we live in a world where I can sit in Fredonia, Yep. Type up some jokes, email them, and they're on the Tonight Show the same night. Yeah, and and well, you and your wife met, uh, traveled to Hollywood a couple of times. Met the no, we were in New York. Or? We met Jay in Chicago one time, okay. Buffalo, and he was in just in Jamestown two years ago. The Lucy, oh, the Lucy okay. Desi, uh, yeah, yeah, comedy yeah. festival. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's yeah, great. he's just a great guy, ordinary guy who got lucky. That's the way he puts it. And, and he's down to earth, and a lot of yeah. a lot of Hollywood people aren't like that. Yeah, well, a fantastic story. Now, uh, 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 how did you come up uh, come to meet Jack and 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 be part of his life? <laughs> I got I got to ask this because no, it's really strange. I'm really shocked yeah. because it doesn't happen often. But I used to, it in, so. I read his column for years before I met him. So I walk into the White Village restaurant, just half mile from where he lives, about yeah, right, and. Uh, I walk in, and he happens to be sitting at a table looking at the doorway as I walk in. And I nudge my wife, Sharon. I says, that has to be Jack Cashel. I recognize him from his picture in, sure. in World Not Daily. Plus, yep. you have no idea that I even live in or have a house in that part of the world. Yeah, right? like, yeah. what? Why could he possibly be here? <laughs> of all the but gin joints in the yeah. world, yeah. you had a walk in the mind. And I, I'm not a guy who normally is that forward. And so I said, but I told her, I said, I, I've got to go up to him and ask him if he is Jack Cashel. And I did. And I said, well, would you like to have lunch before you leave town? <laughs> and, and that started it. Yeah. And that's and that's how it all started. And then we started our little cabal meetings about yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Oh, the four guys? There's four, four of us, yeah. 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 Now yeah. we had like 22 now people. Now we have yeah. Doug and Joe Hagen. Yeah, right. We got, yeah, we have uh, <laughs> celebrities yeah. and, uh, you know. TV stars and oh man, I'll tell you. Maybe get Jay Leno to come something. There you go. Yeah, it was it was quite, it was quite the uh, quite the event, and, and uh, we were honored to be part of it. But uh, well, uh, all of this is just. I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost overwhelming when I look at uh, Jack's book and I read Jack's books, plural, read his columns, and just the improbability improbability of of everything that we're that we're seeing here. Uh, but Mr. Privateer, you have and. and well, folks, I, I've, I've, I've been receiving a lot of uh, Mr. Privateer's emails and, and his intelligence briefings, if you will, that, that kind of, I, I don't know if I'd call them intelligence briefings, but it has a lot of intelligence to them. And, of course, uh, you're a, a student, if not even an, and I'll use this term, you might dispute it, but an expert in recognizing biblical significance to events. Well, I try to connect dots, and it's very difficult. Yeah. I, there's nothing that I do is original. I'm just trying to compile what other guys do. And, Put, uh, putting it together. Yeah, yeah. and uh, uh, I put together material like from Steve Ciccolani. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. him. Yep. I know you're familiar with Scotty Clark, Adabu Seven. And, right. 
uh, Matt Patterson from the Daily Crow, and there there are others. And but your guest, I would have to say, it's your show that triggered this interest in me because of the guests that you have: Tom Horn, oh, yeah. Chris Putnam, Steve Quayle, yep, Stan Dale. You know, those are the ones that really stand out to me. Uh, Ted Brawler. Oh yeah, uh-huh. and uh, that's what really triggered it. And um, it, what I put together is that something looks like something big is coming next year. And everyone can feel it. I mean, we get emails every day saying we can feel that there's something wrong, but not only that, we can feel that something is coming. And when you had mentioned uh, just briefly before the uh, before airtime what you had, I, I it kind of did a double take because I've, I've I'm familiar to some extent with what you have. But if you want to explain it, I mean, yeah. it's it's if folks it's, listen uh, to this because it's important. Yeah. The uh... I call it the prophetic sig- significance of 2017. And there seems to be a lot of things converging next year. Yep. And this whole presidential election campaign business, there seems to be a supernatural element to it that's hard to grasp. Things, mm. things are, there are forces behind this that are directing our nation in a certain direction. And, uh, so that's why I put this together. And I think It'll be kind of interesting to go through it. Let's go through it. And folks, yeah. again, our guest is Mr. Anthony Privatera. You might be wondering, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, the convergence of events in 2017 is something that, uh, well, the totality of our guests are, are in the aggregate, I suppose, that uh, have, uh, have, they're all talking about some series of, of dare I say, prophetic events, uh, certainly some supernatural events. By definition, I guess events, and of course, Mr. Privateer has has outlined some things. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. What, what okay. do you have? So <clears throat> there are certain numbers that uh, you'll see how they're going to play a part okay. in this. All right. Uh, the biblical numbers of seventy, fifty, and forty. Okay. Okay. Seventy is made up of two perfect numbers, seven and ten. Okay. Seven indicates perfection. You know, like it took yep. seven days to create. Okay, ten is the number of completion. So we have a perfect completion of God's law with seventy. Okay, that's the interpretation of that. Fifty means usually means the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you'll see how fifty plays out in these coming events in biblical numerology right. now, right? right? Okay, forty usually means a time of testing and probation. Okay, like Jesus was tested for forty days in right. the desert. The right. Jews wandered for 40 years. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's... Okay. So? Okay. 1967 was the year of the Six-Day War when Jerusalem uh-huh. was recaptured and put under Jewish control. Okay? Jerusalem came under control of the Jews for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Okay. Okay, so... So, 67, 1967 is going to play a role in this. All right. Okay. From 1967... 50 years later is going to be 2017. Okay. Right. So since the Jews started stopped counting Jubilee years correctly, we're not sure whether 50 years later from 1967 is going to be a Jubilee year, but it might be. Okay? Okay. 50 years added to 1967 yeah, right, right. will be 2017. Right. So it might be a Jubilee year coming up. So okay. a jubilee year 
historically is when slaves and prisoners were freed. Right. Debts were forgiven. And okay. the mercies of God would be made manifest. That was the that okay. was the excitement of a jubilee year. No, no. With the, with respect to the jubilee, I, I'm it's struggling to remember to recall if this the, does do your numbers line up perhaps if you even if you know or if you followed uh, Jonathan Kahn, um, the uh, the author of uh, yeah uh, the Harbinger the Harbinger right. Does that line up? Is that consistent with his with his findings? Right. Like I say, there's a, there's a there's indeterminate a question, question of whether I get that yeah. because the jubilees haven't been counted correctly, possibly. Right. Okay. But we're still in the since, same area. since they were dispersed. Right. Know. Okay. okay. So. The Jews were set free from Babylon after seventy years of captivity. So there's seventy. The Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in seventy A.D. That's true. Okay. okay. Yep. Roswell, New Mexico, 70 years prior to 2017, in 1947, a UFO allegedly crashed, leaving behind some very bad UFO pilots. That's right. From a galaxy far, far away. Now, this is the story. That's the story. Right? That's, That's the right. story. But did you notice that Hillary Clinton says if she gets elected, she's going to reveal the secrets of Roswell, New Mexico? <laughs> that that kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't find any context to that statement. Yeah, yeah it was one of her first promises. Right. So we can... You know, okay. Bill Clinton, when we, we, he took office in 93, said that was the first thing that he was going to look right. at. So we can yeah. count on that. Count yeah, right. <laughs> Man, was one perfect. reason to vote for Hillary. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah, Hillary, uh, yeah, we're going to hold you to it. Okay, so... Uh, in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Okay. 70 years later, it's 2017. All right. Okay. Uh, the major UN resolution to create the State of Israel was issued in 1947. All right. 70 years later, 2017. The Belfort Declaration was issued in 1917. That's right. To create a homeland for the Jews in the Middle East. So, 100 years later, 2017. Mm. 500 years before 2017, in 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses. You know, if that's anything of significance. But also, in 1517, 500 years before 2017, the Turks captured Jerusalem. Okay. Okay, yes, yep. and they held it for 400 years. Until 1917, and they lost it to England. Oh, yes. Okay. okay. The year 2017 marks the Hebrew calendar year of 5,777. We think that's true, you know, because of the Hebrew calendar. Right, right. Um, once they were dispersed to Babylon, things got lost, and yeah, whether the counting is right or not. Yeah, um I was following that from a different, uh, from a rabbi who was very, or from two rabbis actually that were working on this, and that number is a little bit different than mm-hmm. mine. However, you're right because there's some missing years in there and there's some mm-hmm. questionable things. Okay. So, so if it is 5,777, uh, the meaning there is five is the number of grace and right. 777 means perfection. Right. Repeated three times, it means completion. Completion. That's okay. right. The Bible says that 
lights in the heavens are to be for signs and seasons. And the Hebrew word for seasons is really moadim. Jonathan Kahn brought that That's out. right. Mark Biltz, there's another one. That's right. Okay. The, uh, blood, four blood moons. Right. Yep. Yep. And moadim really doesn't mean winter, summer, fall, or spring. It really means divine appointments. As opposed to seasons. Right. Okay. We think of, we think, we read this and we think, oh, means summer, fall. Right. It doesn't mean that. No. It means okay. divine appointments. So he put signs in heavens for divine appointments. All right. Okay. That's an important distinction. Yeah. Now we get into the, uh, and now we really get into the intriguing thing here. Jupiter, planet Jupiter has been known from ancient times as the king planet. Right. Okay. So this goes back to Hebrew understandings of the, of the Maseroth. Have you ever heard of the Maseroth? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and in it's fact, if you want to just give a mention here right before the break as to what. Well, the Maseroth is the, um, the various the various constellations that astrology is corrupted, right? But the Jews understood the Maseroth, the constellations, actually tells the story of the gospel. Again, yeah. signs in the in the heavens, mm-hmm. correct? I mean, yeah. And, and it's an important distinction too. We're not folks. We're not talking about. Um, I don't want astrology, right? Is that, is that the word astrology? Right, for, astrology. No, that's I where mean, the planets influence your future. Right, right. Yeah, we're, not we're not talking, talking about, about that. that. This is the, the, the definitive signs in the heavens, uh, meaning, of course, divine appointments, as as you had mentioned. Yeah, so, even in the book of Job, Orion is mentioned. Right. And the Pleiades are mentioned. Mm-hmm. The seven-star constellation. Right, right, right. Yeah, okay, so. okay. Had to stop so, and think yeah. there. Wow. So this... These constellations were all identified long before astrology came along. Right. Yeah. So there's a constellation. Now, here's where it gets interesting. There's a constellation sign described in Revelation 12 that describes a woman clothed with a sun that is giving birth. And here's how it actually reads. This is from the New American Standard Bible. <clears throat> a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Mm. And then we skip to verse five. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to hold verse okay. five right there, folks. Okay. You're you're listening, we're up against the bottom of the hour break for getting ready for our final segment. We are so blessed to have with us two awesome guys. Uh, Jack Cashel, author of TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, The cons- yeah, the Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy, and Mr. Anthony Prevatera, who is, in my view, just a great analyst. And we're talking here about the convergence of events taking place in 2017 from a biblical perspective. Fascinating information. Please stay with us because you're going to want to hear the end on both counts. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman Hagman Report, and we're right back. Stay right where you're at.
We're back with Jack Cashel and Mr. Privatera here in the final segment of this edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Uh, in the last segment, we were uh, listening to Mr. Privatera go through some interesting statistics pertaining to uh, the year 2017 and biblical numerology. And I was sitting just right over there listening as my dad was, was here, and now we just switched chairs, and uh, he's sitting there watching, and I'm right here. So we're going to do this last segment, and uh, let's, let's hear what you got, Mr. Privetera. It's very interesting. Um, okay, Joe. Oh. And I'm, I'm kind of familiar with this, I think, more so than my father, so okay. we can hit this. Great. Thing. So on that Revelation 12 sign that we were in the middle of, uh, and she was uh, with child, and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. And then we skip to verse 5, and it says, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So some guys will interpret this as the woman being uh, the church, then some interpret it as being Israel. And I've right? actually heard the interpretation that um, the woman is Mary and the baby is Jesus. Yeah, and, and, right. Yeah. Um, so it says here, so here's one clothed in sunlight, which makes makes the possibility that this is the visible church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the 12 stars, some say, are the 12 apostles, making this the New Testament church. Mm-hmm. Then they're saying, some will say, well, the 12 stars are really the 12 tribes of uh, Israel. So yeah, there are different ways is, to interpret this. Which is relevant in the yeah. book of Revelation. It talks about the 144,000 from... Uh, 12,000 from each tribe. Right. Um, so it can be uh, looked at in a number of ways. But there's some significance to whatever the sign is. Absolutely. And uh, the amazing thing is, and here we are at the crux of the matter, this constellation sign of the woman will rise over Jerusalem next September 23rd, 2017. Now this is the... Um, the uh, astronomy part. Right, this is the astronomy part. You're talking this, about the signs in the sky. Right. Uh, you're in Jerusalem, the, the 23rd of September, 2017, and the night sky you look up, or in the sky you and, can look up, and you'll have exactly what is described in Revelation 12. But, but here's the fantastic part of it. It'll rise with the sun. You won't be able to see it. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this will be on the one day after the first day of the Feast of Trumpets. Okay. Okay? That's significant, too. It will not be visible to the naked eye because the brightness of the sun will block out this lineup that you're going to hear about. Okay? The only Here's the, here's the uh, mystery part of it. The only reason we know this appearance will take place is due to the availability of the computer programs we now have available to us today. An example okay. of that is uh, that everybody can use a stellarium, yes, stellarium. Um, which you can go back to any date in history, uh, allegedly, uh, and any date in the future, and see the position of the stars from any location in the world. And you can go forward. Yeah. Right. And remember, Daniel said in the end times, knowledge would increase, mm-hmm. and things of God that are concealed until the end would be revealed. <clears throat> so it, it leads you to the question, is... Is this one of those things that Daniel was suggesting thousands of years ago would happen? 
So the truly unique thing about the Revelation 12 sign is that the king planet, here it is now, the king planet Jupiter, we know from the computer programming, it will go, it will seem to go into the womb of the woman on November 20th this year, 2016, and it will appear to produce what is called a retrograde motion. It will appear to go oscillate back and forth in her womb area for 41 to 42 weeks. Okay. And 41 to 42 weeks is the normal gestation period of a child. Mm -hmm. And then it will exit. It will exit what appears to be her womb on September 9th next year. Wow. Okay. This is what makes this so unique. Okay, so the modern computer technology tells us that all of these factors, the sun, the moon, the constellation Virgo, the woman, Mars, Jupiter, the king planet, Mercury, Venus, and the star Regulus, which is going to be part of these 12 stars. Regulus is also known as the king star. Mm-hmm. So you've got the king planet, the king star, all in this line. In the constellation Leo, which it will be part of the, her crown, okay, all of these celestial elements have never been in this order before, and they will never be again in this order. And that that's is, told, told us by Stellarium. And that's fascinating. Um, and never before in history have all these things lined up at the same time in the same place from the uh, foundation of Israel again, uh, coming after almost 2,000 years of not being a nation, to the uh, increase of technology and knowledge that we see, which is now uh, increasing at a pace that's out la- or is just outpacing itself to the point of artificial intelligence becoming dominant. You have um, just the the Arab Spring, the, tur- the tribulation and turbul- turbulence in the world, especially in the Middle East, where uh, you know civiliza- civilization started. And we see the increase of the immigration throughout Europe and the rise of, of more terror attacks and the, the spreading of ISIS. And you see what's happening here in America as this country is continuing its decline uh, through political and uh, spiritual corruption and bankruptcy that we have in this nation as God's removed from the schools. So all these events, including the signs in the skies and in the heavens, are coming to fruition all in the same uh, time period, which makes us so fascinating. Yeah. So, we we'll have to wait and see. What I do guess. we do? Yeah, what <laughs> is anything going to happen? I don't know. But uh, so many things seem to be converging. It's definitely something to Isn't look it? out for. Absolutely. Yeah. And well, and that's fascinating. And uh, is that Matt Peterson, the Daily Crow? Yeah, uh, yeah. He's, he's been yeah, a guest Matt, on the show before. He's been on your show before. Yeah, yeah he's, he's very a, good. He has a fascinating website. Mm-hmm. He has a talent uh, or a gift from God that he he can put things together. That <laughs> yeah, he has <laughs> a, mind-boggling a way with numbers and and uh, he's a way yeah. of seeing things like you said and putting them together in a way yeah. that that's just fascinating. Well, I don't know if it means anything, but I was born in 1947, so it's really like, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> giving away your yeah. your age yeah. there. Well, not quite. I actually was so born at the end of 1947, so <laughs> I'm only 68 now. By the way, uh, perfect, perfect completion. Yeah, right. Year, right? Exactly right. That's, uh, <laughs> 
Well, we, if I can, Jack, what do you think of all the the, the prophecy? I, I don't know um, how into the prophecy. I don't think we've talked about this before. But no, I'm uh, I, I'm uh, open minded about it. I I really don't know enough. This is all news to me in a sense. You know, I don't, I can't say it's news. Of I'm aware of biblical prophecy. I just just not a student of it, so I can't comment on it. You know, intelligently. So uh, if you can't comment on something intelligently, I've decided yeah. you're better off. Uh, you know, just uh, holding he, your tongue. He's an you know expert more. in other fields. <laughs> or you can do like my dad and, and fake it till you appear to make it. And, well, sometimes, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's that. You know, sometimes I mean, if you have to fake things, you do that. Yeah. But, you know, in fact, you know, just to put in, in, uh, in, and that's what I like about Nin's presentation is he doesn't, you don't go beyond your knowledge base. You know, mm-hmm. you don't say what will happen, but rather what might happen. And, you know, because you're, the, the numbers are indicating it, but, a direction, but they're not telling you the your what you have to think. You know, a lot of these guys in in the uh, world of trying to connect current events with right. prophecy, they say keep your eye on Erdogan out of Turkey. Huh. Standale, uh yeah, he says that. Too. He said that. He said that on ago. our show. Yeah, and he's been bringing it up. Um, and it's I forget what uh, the Turkish people were comparing him to. Um, Some com- consider I think him a it god. Was, it was the person who took over Constantinople and turned it into Istanbul, um, if I remember correctly, and I'm not sure who that is. But there is a, uh, according to Standeo, that he is one of the people we should be keeping our our eye on, along with the General Soleimani out of Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. as uh, you know, two potential end time biblical figures. And I believe that we are definitely. Um, when I say in the end times, I mean we're in the season of the end times. It could be five years, it could be a year, it could be a month, it could be a hundred years. Well, you know, but we also, are. I mean, on a, I would say in a somewhat more optimistic note, is that American history has been um, sort of convulsed by awakenings. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. been two previous great awakenings, and I don't, I don't know how the numerology works, but on this, one was in like the 1750s and 1760s that paved the way for the uh, American Revolution. There's really the without which not of it. There's a, a profound continent, you know, I mean, continent wasn't that big, but nationwide uh, religious uh, revival. The second one occurred in, in the 1830s, uh, mostly through the Piedmont area, Appalachia and so on and so forth, which um, it turned to the, like, which would had been the most feral part of America, the wildest and most dangerous part of America, into the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, now, and when you read the history of that area before the awakening, it was pretty savage, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, not talking Indian savage, I'm talking, you know, uh, settler savage. So I think that the America's great and final hope now is the third great awakening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if, I think if it happens, I think it would occur, uh, I, ideally among the Hispanic or black population, you know, or both. Um, or the Amish. Well, the Amish, <laughs> yeah, right. They, <laughs> it's the Taco Rising. Yeah, right. There, that's in fact, I wrote a, right. a, my, a novel about that kind of thing set in Chautauqua County. And curiously, as you know, then, is the western New York state was called the Burnt Over District because it had been swept by the fires of revivalism and evangel- you know, evangelism so many times, especially in the first half of the 19th century. I mean, think of all the religions that started here. Yeah. John Wesley, I think, right? Right, uh, the Mormonism, uh, yeah. you know, the Millerites, um, <laughs> Seventh-day Adventism, uh, the, you know, even things like the um, 
How about the spiritualists, the, you know, mm-hmm. the Oneida yeah. community, WCTU, you know, I mean, there's one movement after another has come out of this part of the world for whatever reason. So you can be the man, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I think, uh, you know, the strict rules imposed by the Catholic Church from the Inquisition to, you know, their position as um, their representation of Christ on earth, you know, through those awakenings, I think that's what, you know, led to these uh, breakaways from the Catholic Church's uh, these historical events in history. And when you think about it, when I think about it in a political context here in America, when we have this election that we do coming up with these two candidates, one being Hillary Clinton, the other being Donald Trump, and if you want to say it this way, Hillary Clinton is really the devil we know, and we know what she will do from the you know, abolition of the second, First and Second Amendments to... Uh, so much more that she promises to do. Um, and then from Donald Trump, you know, he's promising a lot of things. You know, we've heard promises for forever. But the important thing is, is everybody's looking at these two people as, you know, the saviors of, of you know, politics in America. Well, it'll either be like a socialist communism through Hillary Clinton or there'll be a free market, you know, capitalist uh, revival if Donald Trump gets in. And sadly, people, I think, get their own peril look at the presidential elections as uh, a way to to really change things when the local level is, is how you, you change things from the ground up. But um, Right. And I, uh, I'm not sure many people look to either. I know Democrats aren't. I, I will say this. There's <laughs> there's almost no enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton on, on that side. That's true. If Donald Trump has an advantage, he has an enthusiasm advantage. You know, yeah. All the enthusiasts are on his side. And that shows up in the way their attendance at various events. Absolutely. But I don't know that anyone's looking at Donald Trump as a savior in that regard. I know? hope not. <laughs> no, I hope, yeah, right. Although I must say, I, I do, I attend a traditional Catholic church, you know, an, mm-hmm. an old school Catholic church. And, uh, in 2012, uh, our priest was, uh, talking to the, to the parishioners about whether you could vote for a Mormon for president, you know, and in that case, Mitt Romney. And he said, you know, under normal circumstances, I wouldn't recommend it. But he is running against, and this is a quote, the Archbishop of Satan. <laughs> now, there aren't many Catholic churches that are going to hear that. No, you know, but, uh, no. Uh, but, I mean, in this case, I think we're the Archb- Arch- Archbishopress of uh, Satan is, uh, would not be far off. So I think for uh, a lot of people, it is a question of we know uh no, the question, the better, the devil you know? No, we know that devil. Right. No, we know it's, I know her much too well, you know? As many people do in this country who've lived through the uh, Bill Clinton administration and who've lived in Arkansas during their tenure and as power uh, right. and, there. And if she's not willing to speak to the press while she's running for president, yeah. what happens when she's elected? Yeah. Why would she bother, you know? Absolutely. As we see, this is the most transparent uh, administration uh, in history, according to the media and the the talking heads there. No, but they know it's not, and it's and that it's uh, despite Obama's promises, it's been the least transparent. And um, and but they can get away with it because the media simply hold them to a different set of standards. Mm-hmm. So, but I think part of what you do, Joe and Doug and uh, and then and everyone who's and this is what I think makes America great and still salvageable. And we talk about you talked about information and, and uh, the more information available. This is the first time in history that the average citizen can create his own information empire. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a big empire or a small empire. Uh, but every every person on Facebook is his own publisher now. Mm-hmm. You know, he could take information and distribute it, you know, uh, through email, through Facebook, through other social media. And if you educate yourself, you have the potential to educate others. So um, the the whole rise of citizen journalism where ordinary people, and I include myself, I mean, who have no uh, newsroom to fall back on, you know, who have no great resources to uh, to dip into, can uh, make a difference. Uh, and it's... Um, and I think that is, and that's what's still unique about the United States. There's no country in the world where that's true right now, but here. It's not true in Europe. Certainly okay. not true in the third world, but, uh, or in Russia, but, um, so uh, that, that's why I would encourage people not to despair and to, uh, you know, to look to, uh, you know, to look for, look for signs that okay. something good will happen. What, next- should, what should we think about the, uh, internet being turned over to the UN in October? Is that yeah? There's a, there's a lot of speculation about that. Some say you know you since this is a something that is under federal control, it can't be ha- handed over to an international organization without an approval from Congress. Um, others say that this is a turnover to the UN. And some of the leaked emails from the Open Society and George Soros talk about you know what they want to do with this uh, internet turnover to the uh, United Nations as well as through the TPP they want to create further regulations and shut down um, just the other day there was uh, just yesterday um, there's a new uh, advertising policy on YouTube that is allowing YouTube to demonetize any video that has political opinions or um, that there's other guidelines right, that, so that right. they can um, take away your, your revenue based on your political opinions now and they're looking for other ways to censor um, what they feel is is the truth. It's actually well, truth and the citizen journalism you talk about. You don't see a lot of people that are uh, hoping to land jobs at CNN or Fox News. You see people wanting to make a name for themselves who are looking and hungry for the truth instead of being told what to say and you know given a just like the presidents are um, you know teleprompters with you know what you're going to say on them. Yeah, you know, I, I spent a, mo- a day last month with a friend of mine, uh, James O'Keefe, who's many people know, mm-hmm. who's you know who who. As a 25-year-old with his 22-year-old friend dressed as a pimp and a prostitute, brought down a two billion dollar organization mm-hmm. on a shoestring, and they have since you know James has turned it into a kind of a mini, you know now he has probably about a dozen employees, and they they're all over the country doing stuff. But that's how it's the, this has never been possible before. That's so right. I think it's it's uh, it behooves us to. Oh, I used the word behoove. I promised to go the whole night without saying the word behoove. But. <laughs> I distrust people who use the word behoove. <laughs> I distrust myself here. Um, to uh, take that opportunity. And if, and, you know, regardless of how they try to control information, you know, even in the Soviet Union, they had what they called the Samizdat, you know, the Samizdat media, which was by any means necessary. Yeah. Whether you're cranking out, you know, mimeograph sheets or, you know, writing on, you know, on invisible ink or whatever, you know, the word is going to get out. And, and now I think people... Certainly on our side, uh, our fuel and power, the whole alt-right thing, you know, which is yeah. a phrase I didn't even know what it meant a month ago. You know, no, me it, neither. Yeah. I didn't until about three days ago. Yeah, right. And now it's, a, you know, we were told. But what, what the, if they fear it enough that they have to talk about it, you know. Yeah. yeah. Hillary did, and she spent the speech denouncing it. Yeah, that was strange to see her uh Call out Alex, Alex Jones by Alex name. Jones, yeah. he, was, he must have been thrilled. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
uh, and it, it's it's really sad when you see you know so much of what she's denying and and fighting against is is actually true. Um, she doesn't have a leg to stand on except to call people names and hurl insults and you know continue to belittle and cover up and whatnot. And um, hopefully we do, and everybody in this country gets to see her, her true colors before the election um, in November. We got about seven minutes left, uh, Jack. I wanted to ask you uh, some questions. What do you plan on doing from here? Um, you got anything lined up? Yeah, or? I mean, I'm working on a, a book right now with um, an Iranian dissident who's the leading uh, dissident uh, out of Iran. Uh, and uh, we were talking off the air about one revelation he made. I can't talk about it on air, but it's, it's major. Um, and that um, it has to do with American politics. Because uh, he, and it's an interesting case because this is a, um, a fellow who just happened to watch a, and this speaks to the whole world of information that's around. Uh, just in just one guy, he just found a thread and he started yanking on it. And it, and it led to extraordinary revelations, just not only about Iran, but about the United States. Uh, so that these things are out there. And, uh, you know, Nin was talking about connecting dots, you know. And that, that's what I consider myself as a dot connector. You don't have to have a, a major newsroom behind you to connect dots. In fact, mm-hmm. the newsroom will tell you not to connect them because they're going in the wrong direction. Or some kind of high, you know, university education. No, no, uh, no. I mean, look at all the people who've done well, you know. I mean, Rush Limbaugh didn't go to college. Bill Gates didn't go to college, you know. Yeah. Uh, Zuckerberg went to a year for a year or two, but uh, you don't need that. What you need is just the ambition and, and the instinct. Mm-hmm. The instinct to tell the truth um, and to, to follow the truth where it leads you, you know. It's all out there. The major media do people like me a huge favor by leaving <laughs> incredible stories on the table. Mm-hmm. I should never have written this book. I should never have written that book. They should have been written by someone from the New York Times. But they're not interested, so it's left for other people to do it. And and it's, you know, um, you guys shouldn't be telling the truth. You, you shouldn't be here. This The information you're spreading should be being spread by people in exalted studios getting big salaries. Mm-hmm. But instead, they're, you know, every night you turn on the TV, I don't care which station, and they're rehashing nonsense about the presidential election. They don't even know what they're talking about, you know. You know, every day when we look at the news, I try to, you know, the first thing I tell myself is, all right, what is important that does not have anything to do with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton that we can talk about? Yeah. And so often, more often than not, just about every night, we find ourselves getting sucked right into that, you know, talking about it. But you have to, to some degree, because there is a lot of deception going on in the media. There is a lot of lies, and there are still a lot of people out there who believe these lies. And their hearts are blinded to the truth, and some of it's spiritual reasons, and some of it is, in, you know, uh, reasons of ignorance. And we hope that, you know, if we can just reach one person a day and make that difference, that we do it. But, you know, all we do, as we say so often, is just show up, and it seems that everything else falls into place, and, and we attribute that to the Lord. That's a big part of it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've been reading, um, I'm a student of history, and I uh, actually have a PhD in American Studies, so I, I feel sort of obliged to be, but... I just finished reading a biography of James Madison, a very good one, by Lynn Cheney. And then before that, I read Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. And um, when you read the history of the first 10, 20 years of the American experience, starting, let's say, starting with 1789, where you know, mm-hmm. the, the country is in gear, is in um, 
first of all, how vitriolic their debates were. Mm-hmm. How how mean, you know, mm-hmm. in ways that we can't even begin to appreciate today. And when push came to shove, they shot each other. Yep. You know, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton shot and killed. Yep. Um, you know, and and Hillary Clinton is a fairly evil candidate. Actually, she's probably the the most evil aspirant for the presidency since Aaron Burr. But there's a precedent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw then that the future of the nation was. It was a thread, you know. At any point in those first 10, 20 years, everything could have fallen apart. Yep. Everything could have. And, and on a couple occasions, it was, it was on the verge of doing that. It had not been for George Washington, they probably would have for the first eight years. And after that, it was the grace of God that kept the country together. And um, Colin Kaepernick aside, <laughs> I still think God uh, blesses America, you know. And I, I, I'm not sure we, we're deserving it anymore, you know, but... Uh, I'm I'm confident that we can push on. Well, actually, I, uh, I saw a headline that uh, I don't know if the game has already been played or if this is something that's going to be that he predetermined to do, but he did or apparently will kneel with the rest of his teammates as the na- national anthem sung, and he's given in for whatever reason. And there was a big chunk of what he said that was left out, where he called out Hillary Clinton and her corruption, and he called oh, did he? Really? yeah yeah he, he was uh, I mean, but, but that was part of it though, um, what he said. But the, that was the part that was ignored. The part, obviously, that was focused on was what he said about, uh, you know, not they're boycotting the national anthem and whatnot. And and part of his problem is that, um, and you know, I wrote a book on the, the uh, Trayvon Martin case, for instance, mm-hmm. called "If I Had a Son," is that he's been uh, fed a, a steady stream of misinformation, disinformation from the major media, and without hearing the other side, and he gets you know getting in, uh, sort of. A, Outraged by all the lies he's been told and thinking they're true, um, he sees a pattern where none existed and overreacted. And, you know, it's a shame because it's a... Well, you know, I, I think a lot of us, you know, before we have woken up, as people say, um, that that's the case for, for all of us, you know. Uh, we've been conditioned. We believe things instead of research and look into them ourselves. And when people actually sit down and look into what it is that they believe, uh, or sit down and look at something, then they figure out what they really believe and what's really true and not. And sadly, most of the people, you know, are so far gone that they don't even look for the the truth of a matter. Or they don't even know to look for it. Right, you know? exactly. And they in Kaepernick's case, there. I think that's the case. And, uh, and I'm sure there's other issues going on in his head, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a shame because the, the real division the in America today, I'm convinced, is I just came back from a family reunion and half of my family will vote for Trump and half will vote for Hillary Clinton. And the lifestyle differences between each half is the minimal. We all believe in roughly the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's just that their half has, has an information flow that is extraordinarily narrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know their flow because we see it. It's in our faces. Every time I open up AOL, it's there in my face. They don't know our flow. Yep. And they've been taught that it's evil and uh, dangerous and racist horrible and, and racist, that, yeah. sexist, Islamophobic, uh, xenophobic, sexist, classist, uh, uh, climate change <laughs> denialist. You know, there's a there's a slander for every thought we think, yep. and they and that's what they're fed on a steady basis. And uh, after a while, they don't know any better. So, pray for them. Absolutely, keep those folks in your prayers. Uh, as I always say, I pray that anybody who still can be saved does get saved before it is too late. Folks, that'll do it for us tonight. 
Uh, we have Mr. Privateer here and Mr. Jack Cashel, author of TWA Flight or TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover Up, and The Conspiracy, and Ron Brown's Body. Which this is the first time I've seen this book, so I'm going to read this. Oh, it's been out for about a while. I yeah, years, since so uh, yeah. 04, I think he said. It's a great read. Um, and, and the price goes up every time Hillary Clinton runs for president. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's uh, it's been great having you guys. I hope we get a chance to do this again. And it, again, it was great to be able to to come to your your picnic the other day, and and that was a real it was fun a cabal time. meeting, not a picnic. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, okay. Yeah, my right. apologies. Uh, that'll do it for us. Tonight. Tonight, folks, again, uh, thank Mr. Jack Cashel, Cashel, www.cashel.com. Um, until next time, stay safe. God bless. Have a good night, everyone.